The Smiling Man. About five years ago, I lived downtown in a major city in the U.S. I've always been a night person, so I would often find myself bored after my roommate, who was decidedly not a night person, went to sleep. To pass the time, I used to go for long walks and spend the time thinking. I spent four years like that, walking alone at night, and never once had a reason to feel afraid. I always used to joke with my roommates that even the drug dealers in the city were polite. But all of that changed in just a few minutes of one evening. It was a Wednesday, somewhere between 1 and 2 in the morning, and I was walking near a police-patrolled park quite a ways from my apartment. It was a quiet night, even for a weeknight, with very little traffic and almost no one on foot. The park, as it was most nights, was completely empty. I turned down a short side street in order to loop back to my apartment when I first noticed him. At the far end of the street, on my side, was a silhouette of a man dancing. It was a strange dance, similar to a waltz, but he finished each box with an odd forward stride. I guess you could say he was dance walking, headed straight for me. Deciding he was probably drunk, I stepped as close as I could to the road to give him the majority of the sidewalk to pass me by. The closer he got, the more I realized how gracefully he was moving. He was very tall and lanky and wearing an old suit. He danced closer still until I could make out his face. His eyes were open wide and wild, head tilted back slightly, looking off at the sky. His mouth was formed in a painfully wide cartoon of a smile. Between the eyes and the smile, I decided to cross the street before he danced any closer. I took my eyes off him to cross the empty street. As I reached the other side, I glanced back and then stopped dead in my tracks. He had stopped dancing and was standing with one foot in the street, perfectly parallel to me. He was facing me, but still looking skyward, smile still wide on his lips. I was completely and utterly unnerved by this. I started walking again, but kept my eyes on the man. He didn't move. Once I had put about half a block between us, I turned away from him for a moment to watch the sidewalk in front of me. The street and sidewalk ahead of me were completely empty, Still unnerved, I looked back to where he had been standing to find him gone. For the briefest of moments, I felt relieved until I noticed him. He had crossed the street and was now slightly crouched down. I couldn't tell for sure due to the distance and the shadows, but I was certain he was facing me. I had looked away from him for no more than 10 seconds, so it was clear he had moved fast. I was so shocked that I stood there for some time, staring at him. And then he started moving toward me again. He took giant, exaggerated, tiptoed steps, as if he were a cartoon character sneaking up on someone. Except he was moving very, very quickly. I'd like to say at this point I ran away or pulled out my pepper spray or my cell phone or anything at all. 
but I didn't. I just stood there, completely frozen as the smiling man crept toward me. And then he stopped again, about a car length away from me, still smiling his smile, still looking to the sky. When I finally found my voice, I blurted out the first thing that came to mind. What I meant to ask was, what the fuck do you want? In an angry, commanding tone. <sighs> what came out was a whimper. What the fuck? What the fuck? Regardless of whether or not humans can smell fear, they can certainly hear it. I heard it in my own voice, and that only made me more afraid. He didn't react to it at all. He just stood there, smiling. And then, after what felt like forever, he turned around very slowly and started dance walking away. Just like that. Until he was far enough away to almost be out of sight. And then I realized something. He wasn't moving away anymore, nor was he dancing. I watched in horror as the distant shape of him grew larger and larger. He was coming back my way, and this time, he was running. I ran too. I ran until I was off the side road and back onto a better lit road with sparse traffic. Looking behind me then, he was nowhere to be found. The rest of the way home, I kept glancing over my shoulder, always expecting to see his stupid smile. But he was never there. I lived in that city for six months after that night, and I never went out for another walk. There was something about his face that always haunted me. He didn't look drunk, he didn't look high, he looked completely and utterly insane. And that is a very, very scary thing to see. Hi, I'm Jamie Markey. And I'm Michael Tatum, and this is Ghoul Intention. Quarantine edition, whichever number it is. Who knows? Yes. Who knows what the outside world? Microsoft Word numbers, fighting. Numbers are a thing for the outside world. We no longer pay That's attention. Right. We don't care. We don't, we do what we want. Which <laughs> is not I'm, accurate because I would rather you be here. You have. You're very scruffy. I'm very scruffy. There I, at the face where Brandon calls it. Oh, he's like, you don't have a beard yet, but you have whiskers. And I'm like, I hate that word. I don't know why whiskers? I hate the word whiskers. It makes me sound like a fucking prospector. Oh, I got my whiskers. Like, it's just, <laughs> I don't know. It makes you sound it's like a, very, a kitty cat. It's a very evocative, I don't, I don't, see, I don't think of kitty cats when I think of whiskers. I mean, you think that, I, I see the logic <laughs> in it, but my first thought is I just see an old prospector panning for gold in some, you know, like Black Hills stream. <laughs> you're just getting, you're just getting the beard settled so you can get into character, so you can find that voice, because you have a really good voice for that. I do have a real good prospector voice. One of these days, I See? think I may do an entire episode in this voice. Can it's you do the my... whistle with your S's? It's... Oh, I can do it. It's not very strong, but I can do it a little bit. Not not as good as some people like. There, Jerry, I heard it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a whistle that comes out from your dentures. 
she. Yes. She, that sat very sound. I remember doing that. <laughs> I did that for an old person voice, one of my first gigs as in a Wallace session thousands of years ago. And the person was, the director was really impressed. Like, oh, you even got like the denture S. And I was like, is that where that comes from? <laughs> I've just been is? adding the, the S in because I hear it all the time. And, you know, people right. doing old people voices. So I was like, so I guess that's what it is. That's pretty it's good. An S. Oh, no wonder I can't hear you. It's turned way down. Can you hear me We're now? We're so quiet. Oh, yeah. No, my iPad was turned down. So for those who don't know, we're Zooming. We're Zooming to each other. Zooming is so much easier than any other kind of, like, video streaming. Like, it really is. Connecting yeah. thing. Like, Source Connect is uh, problematical. It is. Skype is problematical. Quite, but Zoom has been the only that we've been consistently using that's that hasn't had major issues. Like, every other fucking yeah. program I use, there's, like, an automatic gaining, a, a gain increase uh, mm-hmm. in, in the feedback, which you're like, what the fuck is going on? You're like, oh, it just automatically gains you every time, no matter what where you set the dial. I'm like, that's, that seems like a fucking problem. Right. But it's just... And a, a lot of it... Okay, so I was looking it up, and it's because Zoom has security issues. And that's uh, because they bypass a lot of security to make it easier for everybody to just plug and play. Uh, so, okay. and even then, I'm like, I have to sign in every time. <laughs> every oh, fucking like one time more I use fucking it. password. Bear in mind. Yes, yes, and so they, uh, but their security bypass. Apparently, it's pretty easy to hack. So I have little stickers that I cover over my uh, camera, so when I'm not using it. They can't film me. My camera, my webcam has a little shutter on it, so I can just close it like so. See, Jamie, look. Phew, I'm yeah. gone. I'm gone. Oh, you are gone. And now, whoop, I'm here. <laughs> that here was fun. It went sideways. I know. It's like a side swap. Like That's a, nice. Like a PowerPoint yeah. slide transition. It's good because even if you delete Zoom from your, like, I'm, it's on my iPad. I have it on my computer. If you delete it from your system, whatever it is you're using, they can still hack through it. To I know it's why I have so. it's why I have a I have a Ghoul Intentions sticker on my camera on my laptop. Nice. I bought little ones that just are like cameras and stuff that you can put over uh, locks like. and stuff too. I like, yeah, I like. So. I should. Well, we should admit. Oh, I should uh, take a moment to say that uh, this this episode is not brought to you by Zoom. <laughs> It's not. <laughs> We're no, just... it's a terrible commercial. I mean, we love it. Security problems, but we fucking love it. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get the truth with us. Hashtag actually someone could Hashtag be hacking actually, you. Hashtag it's worth good, it. <laughs> it's, not, it's a really good service if you don't, if security's not a priority. Yeah, that's right. It's not, I mean, it's not think really of, I mean, and when you're doing a podcast like this, I mean, I guess, you know, we're not so, ding. <laughs> ding. It was on my phone, too. <laughs> Which is on oh. silent. Uh huh. That mm-hmm. was weird. Well, it well, that's not the only from... weird thing this week. You Man. and technology. It's fucking weird. And Mercury's yeah. not even in retrograde. It's just weird. Uh uh-uh. uh. I know. It feels like it. So we're a little late this week. And we're, normally we post Monday nights, and mm-hmm. we are not going to hold ourselves to that until we get shit straight again. My <laughs> computer was being real. Uh, there's another dude. Uh, real wonky with um, with Word. Like, it kept telling me I didn't have the license for it. I called Microsoft or chatted with them three different times and oh, waited oh. a lot. So it was probably a total of 12 hours Jesus over two and a half Christ. days. Oh, my and God. And it would work for a little bit and then not and say it. And I don't know if I was actually getting help or they were just uninstalling and reinstalling. But then I finally was like, well, okay. 
maybe there was a recent update. So maybe it's the update. So I uninstalled everything and reinstalled it. And there's a whole process to uninstalling. You have to go through and take out licenses, and then you got to make ridiculous. sure you empty your trash. It is easier you... to apply for fucking citizenship than it is to call tech support for any Microsoft product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and to find the place to chat, that I finally figured it out. So, so then I could go to it pretty quickly. But then it's like, oh, you're twentieth in line, and I've waited an hour, and I'm still twentieth in line. That doesn't bode well. So, uninstalled and reinstalled, and did no updates, and it's fine. So that's what I did. And that's why I, I couldn't research without having anywhere to type it. And that's the program that I use. And I didn't have, the, I also didn't want to learn a whole other program. So <laughs> I haven't updated. That's how they do it, fuckers. I haven't updated my computer in like since I've gotten it. Like I'd never update anything because I'm like, I don't want to <laughs> fucking, why do I need to update Excel? I never use Excel. Fuck off with that shit. I don't care because I know I'm like, I'm not going to download a whole new OS just so I can fucking run Excel 47 or whatever the fuck. Fuck you, Microsoft. Fuck you. Fuck you. Yeah. Well, and that's how it started. I, I had I thought maybe it was doing it because I hadn't updated my OS. So I updated the OS. Ugh. The nightmare. It's a fucking nightmare. It's this it's is, like I hope this is as boring as it was for me. I was very frustrated. Yeah, like uh, but I did play a lot like, of video games between our content here on the <laughs> podcast, sometimes we cover some pretty nightmarish material, but nothing, nothing is bad. Nothing like tech. Nothing like tech. That's a whole other fucking like Kafka s mm-hmm. nightmare. That like, oh Jesus. And it's just it's it's so like every week I'm really ready for that shit to be over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I do want to say thank you to Erica Lindbeck. Yeah, yeah. For reading the smiling man for us, which She's is so my great. favorite fucking creepy pasta ever. And Erica is one of my favorite fucking people. She's my one of mine too. She's so great. She's um, so fucking great. You can great. hear her. She's in, she's a voice actor. You can hear her in the new Final, Final Fantasy game. Yes. And amongst other places, she's one of the most fun people I know. We've talked about her on the show before because she went into the Edinburgh uh, ghost tour, and she and I have been to a ghost tour together in the rain. It was in very ghost creepy tour and- in the rain. Everybody else was miserable, and we were laughing the entire time. It was pretty great. She is. She's such a (laughs) fun person. Like, she's so genuine and just fucking Mm -hmm. funny. Love her, love her. And and she did such a good job. Oh, my God. hell out of that story. So here's one of the, like, the smiling man is one of those stories that I hear constantly. Like, you hear a lot because it's such a good story. Mm. But you hear it told mostly by men. And my issue with that story in particular is that when a man tells the story, it is missing the vulnerability that happens when a female tells the story. Mm, There's a lot more at point. risk. I agree. I uh, agree. And so that, you know, and I feel like that happens a lot with ghost stories that are out there. It's clearly a female's perspective, and there's a lot of dudes that read it, not a lot of ladies reading. And so, you know, I really like that we give women a chance to read those stories, and we because it just adds something that I think is missing. Women have terrifying women have terrifying experiences too. We do. Oh my god. <laughs> who knew? Who knew? Yeah, who knew? Who knew? And so Erica nailed it. Such a good. And like oh, I messaged so her to ask her if she wanted to do it and she had it to me in like 20 minutes. She was like, "I'm doing it right fucking now." I was like, "Yes! I love her." Hey, <laughs> that's the one good thing about this quarantine lockdown is that, you know, everyone's home. Yeah, and so it's like, oh, yeah, all just, of a, a lot I'll of us voice actors have to get our own studio together. So everybody's like, yeah, I've got a studio. Might as well use it's it. Great. It's never been easier to reach out to our colleagues and get them involved. I know. <laughs> hey, hey, friends, do you want to make our lives easier? Read this story for us. Hey, friends, do you want <laughs> do you want something to do to just kill a, a, a weird lockdown afternoon? 
go for it. Here's yeah, the story. Go Read. for it. Go for it. So we have some we have some other ones uh, that we're working on working with getting uh, yeah. read as well. So it's, I hope you guys are enjoying it as much as we are. <laughs> when well, I feel like our colleagues are finally starting to be aware of the podcast, and they're like, "Oh, that's yes. cool! I want to I want to be involved." I want to read a ghost story. Like, yeah. Do you? Uh, we do have. Let's see. And we have our uh, we had our Patreon chat last Tuesday. Yeah. And we have our. Uh, Upper tier level, the phantasms and Patreon. We're having mm-hmm. another chat tonight. That's right. So it might actually, we our chat might be over by the time this comes out. But we really enjoy doing the chats, and we have Mr. Kestrel, who is one of our phantasm Patreon members, who came up with our title today. Oh yeah, I love this. So it's from Anthem for Doomed Youth by Wilfred Owen. And it's poem. And the line is, the shrill, demented choirs. Or that's the title. The shrill, demented choirs. Shrill, demented choirs. It's so good. It's so good. So thank you, Mr. Kestrel, for that. Yes, yes, yes. Um, That's one of the things for the phantasms. We have a whole thing where they can suggest titles to us they can suggest stories and stuff like and that. and this so. title just happens to be perfect for the second part of the watcher which is what i'm covering today and my story which is so fucking crazy i cannot wait i'm gonna just yeah. blaze through part two of the watcher because i want to get to your <laughs> shit uh, <laughs> okay you go and then i'll go okay so so just to recap jamie what do you remember about last week's episode with the watcher like if you had to summarize not to put you on the spot but like pop quiz a lovely family moves into a, a very wealthy neighborhood, and all of a sudden they get these letters that are kind of shit talking their family and <laughs> saying, "Oh, we're wa- we're watching you. I've been watching this house. It's been a part of my family for not all eight or three years." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> why well, you suddenly made this a Ken Burns documentary? <laughs> because why not? Um, and so then. They're like they they get these letters and they try to figure out what's happening and they call the cops and nobody knows what's going on and they keep getting these letters that like specifically talk about their children and they like are clearly the person are, is is watching, watching the them. house. It's like, not just knows their habits, knows what rooms they stay in. Like, yes, says weird yeah. shit like have they found what's in the walls yet? <laughs> blah 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 yeah, blah blah. Right. And Which, anyone and everyone's a suspect. I read this story. Just an aside uh, about somebody. I can't even remember where I read it, but it has stuck with me. Who their uh, parents had moved into what used to be a bank, and they were putting a new business into it, and they got robbed overnight. And when they went in, the next day, like somebody, when they got robbed, whoever came in opened up the wall and took something from inside the wall. And only that, like they took nothing else. Only that. Nothing it's else. like someone had planted something in that building a while yes. back, presumably when it was still a bank, and like, oh, we got to yeah. go back and get that. So like, man. Just that thing. And like, they're like, what else bank is in employee? the walls? Mm, yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, that just um, made me think of that. So. And there's other go stories, ahead. too. I've heard stories of people that move in and find, like, weird secret rooms. Uh, mm-hmm. There's one story I read. Um, I can't remember how long ago or when this took place, but it's recent considerably. Uh, about Some family that moved in and found that, like, and they'd heard, like, weird little noises, like, in the attic and stuff like that. Typical, like, haunting stuff. And, and they finally did some research and they found a fucking hidden room where someone had been living. And Ugh. like while oh, yes. they were there, and like they, yeah. and it was like, oh god, that's so much worse than ghosts. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of where we left the story. Like, you know, the Broadduses, Derek and, and Maria and their three children had bought this this big, like, $1.3 million home on Boulevard Street in Westfield, uh, New Jersey, and a really quiet neighborhood where Maria had grown up, very wealthy, very old money. And this fucking person called The Watcher was really mad about them moving into that house and was clearly saying all kinds of weird shit. And the police weren't really making any headway because they couldn't find, they had a suspect, uh, but they couldn't get them to confess. And, and without a confession, there was not enough evidence to convict. And, and But at the same time, like anyone could have been a suspect because there's so many weird neighbors on that street. So as we get into part two, I just want everyone to bear in mind that, you know, these are people that have spent money on this home. They hadn't moved in yet. They had they were still paying them. They were still uh, trying to close the sale on the house they were moving from. And uh, and they were renovating uh, uh, 657 Boulevard, the new house or the old uh, old house, but new to them. And uh, when all this was going on, and so unnerved were they by the watcher letters that they didn't move in yet. They were still trying to figure out what the fuck to do. So they're trying to like, so they finally sold their old house and still didn't move in to Boulevard. And they were living uh, at uh, Maria's parents' house with the kids. And they were just like, what the fuck do we do? So they're paying this mortgage on a house or whatever. And they'd finally got to the point where there was nothing else they could do but try to sell it. So yeah. this brings us to part two, which is where like you talk about a community that fucking turns on them. Fuck this place. So just six months after receiving the first unnerving letter from the watcher, Derek and Maria Broadus opted to sell 657 Boulevard. Now the price they listed was higher than what they paid, but I mean, that makes sense because they had done some renovations in the place. So they were trying to recoup their losses as best they could. Rumors as to why the house was standing empty, however, wasn't helping the sale. One broker told Maria that her client loved the place, but that there was just so many, quote, unsubstantiated rumors flying around that the the potential buyer just wasn't comfortable making an offer. And that seemed to be the story with everyone. Uh, Well, and at this point, too, having purchased a house, you have to disclose, they have to disclose that they're receiving these letters. Well, and we'll get to that because they don't, Yet, because like the letters are so specifically threatening to the family that there's a legal case to be made for, well, is this, does anyone who move here need to worry about this or is this someone fucking whatever? And it was, well, we'll, we'll get to why. But so people were saying all kinds of crazy shit. And by the way, the public did not know about the letters yet because the police had specifically told the Broadduses, try not to tell your neighbors because as far as we're concerned, everyone's a suspect because it's right. clearly someone who lives nearby or at least often visits someone who lives nearby because of you yeah. know the certain details in the letters that they would only be able to have access to if they were close enough by at certain weird times of night. They were having trouble selling the place um, because, because the public didn't know about the letters just yet. So, but all they knew is this couple had bought the house and something was keeping them from moving in. And so people were saying like there was a sexual predator in the neighborhood or there was some crazed child-murdering stalker. People didn't know. And so to try to curtail the ruinous word of mouth, Maria did release a partial disclosure of the Watcher letters, but it was only made available to anyone prepared to make an offer on the house. Serious offers, that is. Right, Which, sadly, that meant the disclosure didn't make it to many people because most prospective buyers came in way under the asking price. In fact, a lot of them only pretended to be interested in the first place as a means of getting closer to the mystery. This continued Mm. to be the trend even after the Broadduses lowered the price. Um, there was a Caldwell agent that told Maria and Derek that they were being way too forthcoming. And, and he told them, he's like, look, I had a client once that got threatening letters about her dog barking and she didn't tell anyone. <laughs> it's like, it's a, yeah, okay, but this is a little different. 
Um, but the promise is they, they weren't about to subject someone else to the hell they'd been through over the past several months. Well, they, and also, if they had already filed suit against the previous owners, they couldn't then right, be like, right. And yeah, so they, if they, they were sued, there was no were, way they were going to get out of it. They were furious at the at the Woodses, the former owners, for not disclosing the one watcher letter that they had gotten just weeks before the, the close of the sale. Uh, but Andrea, uh, Andrea rather, and John Woods were adamant that the letter they'd gotten a few weeks before uh, closing the, the, the sale, uh, which was the first and only missive in their 23 years there hadn't warranted serious concern, at least not at the time. Nonetheless, Derek and Maria did file a legal complaint against the retired scientists, and though the judge threw the case out, a local reporter caught wind of the story and ran with it, making large quotes from the letters public for the first time. The Broadduses mm. tried to have the record sealed, but waited too long to get the ball rolling on that, and within weeks, the Today Show was doing a piece on their predicament. Hence, the watcher broke onto the national scene and went viral. Good fucking luck finding a buyer now. Well, and also this is at the, this is in the 2010s. This is 2017. This is very recent. 2017. So it's mm -hmm. recent. So we still have the, the spiritual, <clears throat> like spooky, creepy. Everybody's into it. So that that's a story oh, that's yeah. going to sell. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, yeah. imagine here they are. So news trucks are camping out in the street. Reporters are bringing their fucking lawn chairs and putting their feet up on the curb. In the space of just one week after the story broke, the Broadus has received over three hundred requests for interviews. Uh, but advised to, to play it cool by the crisis management firm they'd had to hire, Derek and Maria declined to make a public statement. They, they were thinking about the kids, right? Um, now, from a safer distance, this is from the Weideman article from The Cut that a lot of this comes from. Thank God. I God, love the article. If you have a chance to read it, it's very detailed and it goes into a lot of... Um, a lot of undercurrents of the story that aren't typically covered in other video essays I've seen. Uh, so from a safer distance, uh, Weideman writes, The Watcher was a real-life mystery to solve. A commenter on NJ.com suggested ground-penetrating radar to find whatever the Watcher claimed was in the walls. The home inspector had already looked and told Derek the only issue was the aging home's lack of insulation. A group of Reddit users obsessed over Google Maps Street View of Boulevard, which showed a car parked in the front of 657 that one user thought had, quote, a man holding a camera in the driver's seat. Others more rationally saw just pixelated glare. The range of proposed suspects included a jilted mistress, a spurned realtor, a local high schooler's creative writing project. That one I like. Um, <laughs> I do too. Uh, guerrilla marketing for a horror movie and, uh, quote, mall goths having fun. Mall <laughs> um, <laughs> goths? It's mall. 2017. Right, Stop. Right. Such old people. <laughs> um, some people thought that the Broadduses were wimps for not moving in. One of them said, quote, I would never let this sicko stop me from moving into a house. Never back down from a terrorist. And they have terrorist in all caps. So, you know, they're sane. Uh, right. Which particularly irked the Broadduses because, as uh, Derek said, none of them have read the letters or had their children threatened by someone they didn't know. To it's decide... the children being threatened. If it was just you, maybe. Right, But right. when your children are involved, that's different. Right. Now, meanwhile, the townsfolk were getting antsy. A piano teacher living nearby had to reassure her students that Boulevard was perfectly safe to walk down. The mayor was at pains to assuage, uh, to assuage mounting fears at town council meetings shortly after the letters went public. Westfield residents were in shock. The residents of Boulevard were up in arms. The media blitz was the first any of them had heard about the Watcher. The police hadn't spoken to any of them. Exhaustive investigation their ass. In an open letter to the Westfield PD published in a local paper, paper several residents observed, quote, we are confounded as to how a thorough investigation can be conducted without talking to all the neighbors within proximity to the home, end quote. Yeah. 
To help mitigate the public backlash, veteran detective Baron Chambliss, what a great detective name. Um, yeah, really. Baron Chambliss was brought in to give the case another look. More on him in a little bit. Unable to find a buyer, the Broadduses decided to recoup their losses by selling 657 Boulevard to a real estate developer and split the lot into two subdivisions. But because this ran afoul of the Westfield Planning Board, the request was denied. Subdivisions like the ones proposed were becoming increasingly common in Westfield, much to the dismay of longtime residents, and the proposed lots would be less than three feet shy of the mandated 70 feet. Uh, again, according to Weideman, when the proposal was publicly announced, Westfield's Facebook groups lit up. Some expressed sympathy for the Broadduses, while others pointed out real estate is always a gamble. Another faction was convinced that this was uh, the culmination of a long con. Quote, out of this whole scam artist story, there ends up being nothing more disturbing than this move, a local woman said. A man who coached the Broadduses' son in football wrote, they were in over their heads from day one. The application was uh, jarring for the neighbors who had learned about the watcher from a lawsuit and had always found it strange that the Broadduses didn't share more information, not seeming to understand that they were following orders from the police and trying to protect their kids. Yeah. Uh, when one of uh, Maria's close friends flew to her defense online, she was accused by the rabble of writing the letters herself. So imagine that. Online communities just getting really toxic. That's so, with, that is very with, Without strange. access to information, they're just kind of like, oh, I know what's going on. I'll t in fact, um, you know what? I'm going to make a video about it and tell you everything that I know is happening based upon three <laughs> words that I read. <laughs> so Not when, that I have an opinion about that <laughs> When the planning board met to decide the application in January of 2017, over 100 residents of Westfield showed up to express their displeasure. At least one person retained a lawyer to fight it. The Broaddus' own lawyer, James Forrest, explained that the three-foot discrepancy in the proposed subdivisions would be thinner than the easel he was using to display a map of the goddamn neighborhood. The same map, he noted, showed several other lots along the block well below the 70-foot mandate. <laughs> yeah, that's what got me about, because I remember this about that story, mm -hmm. is that they had already allowed other people to do it. But yeah. for some reason, not this couple. they were like, not no, you got to keep this fucking house. Yeah. But And the yeah. residents would not be swayed by the lawyer's argument. The hearing lasted four hours, during which no one seemed all that interested in why the Broadduses felt compelled to subdivide in the first place. When the board rejected the proposal, Derek and Maria were devastated. This is my town, Maria told Reese Weideman for the Cut article. I grew up here. I came back. I chose to raise my kids here. You know what we've been through. You had the ability two and a half years into a nightmare to make it a little better, and you have decided that this house is more important than we are. Detective Baron Chambliss knew that Michael Langford, if you'll recall, was the favorite among his colleagues in Westfield PD for being the watcher. He'd been diagnosed with schizophrenia as a young man. He spooked the neighborhood kids by walking through backyards or peeping through the windows of homes that were under renovation, but most agreed he was harmless, that Langford's eccentricities were on the friendly side. He'd bring you your newspaper or your mail, for example. Few people who, who knew Michael for long thought that he had it in him to be the watcher. Right. And also, if you get in trouble for looking into windows of houses that are under construction, then I am in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess there's a fine line. You can look in, but I mean, just don't go in. That's the bad thing. Right. Um, more I mean, from unless the, the door's open. More from the Weideman article. As Chambliss looked into the case, he discovered something surprising. Investigators had conducted a DNA analysis on one of the envelopes and determined that the DNA belonged to a woman. 
Chambliss decided to look more closely at Abby Langford, Michael's sister, who worked as a real estate agent. Was she perhaps upset about missing a commission right next door? She also worked at a local Lord and & Taylor, and Chambliss coordinated with a security guard there to nab her plastic water bottle during, during a shift. The DNA sample, alas, wasn't a match. Not long after, the prosecutor's office gave Derek and Maria some unexpected news. They wouldn't say why or how, but they had ruled out the Langfords as suspects. Hmm. So left without a watcher, uh, or at least someone to tag it on, the Broadduses reopened their own personal investigation. They were still coy about sharing too much with their neighbors who remained in the pool of suspects, but spent an Well, after- because also, their neighbors had fucking betrayed them. Yes, right. Um... Uh, but they did uh, they did walk the block with a picture of the watcher's handwriting, uh, the handwritten envelope to try to, to ask people like whatever. Now, they hoped someone might recognize the writing from a Christmas card, but the only notable encounter came when an older man who lived behind 657 said his son joked that the watcher sounded a little bit like him. A neighbor across the street was the CEO of Kroll, the security firm, and the Broadduses hired the company to look for handwriting matches, but they found nothing. They also hired Robert Leonard, a renowned forensic linguist and former member of the band Shanana. <laughs> I love all of us. Uh, <laughs> Random, did, I love it. Right, who didn't find any noteworthy overlap when he scoured local online forums for similarities to the Watcher's writing, although he did think the author might watch Game of Thrones. Jon Snow is one of the Watchers on the wall, after all. Right. At one point, Derek persuaded a friend in tech to connect him to a hacker willing to try breaking into Wi-Fi networks in the neighborhood to look for incriminating documents, but doing so turned out to be both illegal and more difficult than the movies made it seem, so they didn't go through it. Super illegal. Right. Super Super illegal. Chambliss and the Westfield police were also back at square one. The cops asked Andrea Woods for a DNA sample and interviewed her 21-year-old son, who was surprised to find that he suddenly seemed to be a suspect. A year after the fact, it was hard to find fresh leads, and the initial police canvas had been so porous that it had missed a significant clue. Around the same time that the Broadduses had received their first letter, another family on the boulevard had gotten a similar note from the watcher. Now, the mm. parents of that family had lived in their house for years, and their kids were grown, so they threw the letter away, just as the Woodses had theirs. But after the news broke, one of their children posted about it on Facebook, then immediately deleted it. When investigators mm. spoke to the family, they confirmed that the letter had been similar to the Broadduses, but its existence only made the case more confusing. One night, Chambliss and a partner were sitting in the back of a van parked on Boulevard, watching the house through a pair of binoculars. Around 11 p.m., a car stopped in front of the house long enough for Chambliss to grow suspicious. He says he traced the car to a young woman in a nearby town whose boyfriend lived in the same block as 657. The woman told Chambliss her boyfriend was into, quote, some really dark video games, including, in Chambliss's memory, one in which he was playing a character specifically named The Watcher. As for the female DNA, Chambliss figured the girlfriend or someone else could have helped. The boyfriend was living elsewhere at the time, but Chambliss says he agreed to come in for an interview on two separate occasions, though he didn't show up either time. Chambliss didn't have enough evidence to compel him to appear, and with the media attention dying down, he finally dropped the case and moved on. Now, while fear and suspicion consumed the Broadduses hourly, for everyone else in the neighborhood, the Watcher had become something of an urban legend, a boogeyman to spend fun stories about or for armchair detectives to try and unmask. When the which news... I would imagine, too, that that would bring other people to park in front of the house and look at it. Right, it's... which just makes it all, like, it's just so much damage this person can do by just writing a fucking letter. 
like, yeah. you know, anonymously. And it's probably for all intent, they probably fucking live within feet of this goddamn family. And there's nothing they can do because of right. the legal barriers unless you And then solid some evidence. chick is going to be like, oh, my boyfriend watch, plays very dark video games. It might right. be him. Like, why would he be getting his jollies from that if he's already getting it from playing video games? Like, come on. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he's uh, maybe maybe he had something to do while he was waiting for an update to run. Anyway, when, <laughs> so when the news he's broke, waiting for a download. <laughs> yeah, when the news broke, several neighbors gathered in the street to do their own reconnaissance. Someone suggested while looking at 657 Boulevard that maybe, just maybe, the Broadduses wrote the letters themselves. Buyer's remorse was a sufficient rationale as far as this camp was concerned. Derek and Maria had simply bitten off more than they could chew with a $1.3 million home and had concocted a way to get out of it. The fact that they'd tried to sue the Woodses on such a flimsy pretext did seem rather telling. Some thought the Broadduses chasing, uh, were chasing dreams of having their story optioned. Sorry. Some thought the Broadduses chasing dreams of having their story optioned for a blockbuster film also didn't bode well. Never mind that they'd received several offers and turned them down. Never mind that Derek had actually slapped Lifetime with a cease and desist after the network produced a movie called The Watcher, clearly based on their dilemma. Well, uh, and also, as someone who has dealt with a lawsuit... Mm-hmm. Suing someone is not a cheap, cheap situation. No, and and mind you, the Broadduses are already spending so much fucking money. They've hired a a, a threat assessment firm. They've hired a security right. firm. They've hired this. They've I mean, like, yeah, and they're they, doing construction on the house, mm-hmm. and they're paying two mortgages, and they have enough money to sue someone. It doesn't seem to me like they'd be like, let's and to hire spend a private investigator all, all this extra this, money yeah. it to get out of it. It just doesn't make no. sense. If they, were, if they were hurting that much for cash, why spend so much to add to the lie? Right. Just sell it under mm-hmm. what you paid for it and get out of it. Like, yeah. that's what you do. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Um, but still, it, it was suspicious to these people, at least, that the Broadduses, in just under a decade, had managed to upgrade from a $300,000 home to one more than three times that. A few weeks after the letters oh, were published. Oh, what fucking snobs. Sorry. I know, I know, right? And it's That's funny, in, in, the, in the Whiteman article, Derek is like, how did I go up from that to that? Because it's fucking America, and I became a right. vice president of a fucking Manhattan insurance company, and that comes and with a fucking upgrade. in fucking... 10 years? In 10 years. Is that what they're saying? How does he do it for, in 10 years? In 10 years, yeah. And it's, Holy that, fucking that tells shit! You, that tells you how disconnected old money and trust fund people Ugh. are because they don't understand, like, well, well, but once you're making a certain amount of money, that's just all you ever make, right? I'm like, right. if you're fucking living yeah. off a trust fund, sure. Um, Let's talk about your income when you were 20 yeah, versus when your you income actually, when you were but when 30. You actually, but when you actually have a job and you work hard yeah. at it and you're lucky enough to get promoted, you get more money. Rich people, it's weird. It's like rich uh, people are like, money, what's that? Um... A few weeks after uh, the letters went public, the Westfield Leader published an article in which neighbors anonymously asked why the Broadduses were bothering to renovate a home they weren't living in. Were the renovations even all that extensive, they wondered, or were they just kind of hyped? The article even cast doubt on Maria's commitment to her family's safety, citing as evidence the fact that she had a public Facebook page with photos of her kids on it. Fucking lunacy is this paper is like oh see these I people, love this self-righteousness. These people, these like, people well, don't care about really their kids. They have pictures way. of them online. In the meantime, they're fucking driving around with their little fucking decals of like, here's Mary and June and Bob. Um Yeah, like I mean, and the other thing is like, well, how do you know they're really what are they Oh, because no one has done construction on a house before moving into it before? Like, what kind of fucking bullshit is that? I know. It's like these people are I just hate this so, neighborhood. They are. I fuck I hate them all. It. Fuck them all. Um 
Now I'm starting to believe that maybe they could have faked the whole thing to get away from these pieces of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck those people. I don't think they faked it, but um, the paper no, did No, I don't note, think they did either. The paper did note that the police had tested Maria's DNA and that it wasn't a match. So, you know, the paper See? was like, I mean, it's probably not true, but what if it is? <laughs> it's like, shut up, paper. <sighs> One right. Boulevard resident wrote a letter to the editor arguing that an elaborate scheme was underway to defraud the Woods family for millions of dollars. A growing contingent among the Westfield PD was leaning in that direction also. And online, the skepticism was scathing. I live in a neighboring town, one Reddit user said. If these letters have been happening for a while, there is no doubt in my mind that it would have been made public way before this. This screams scam. Let's just ignore the fact that the Reddit user... I live in a neighboring town. I know exactly how <laughs> yeah. these strangers would and, behave. And please ignore the fact that my username is Lord Fluffernutter. <laughs> That's true, by the way. Um, <laughs> wherever they stood on the issue, most Westfield residents seemed more concerned with the bad press than with who the watcher might really be or what the Broadduses were going through because of them. Maria, who had grown up in Westfield, suddenly found herself an outcast. Uh, granted, the Broadduses hadn't expected their community to exactly warm to the idea of a maniac in their midst writing fucking threatening letters, but to stand accused of fabricating it all themselves? Derek wanted to haul stakes to another town, but Maria was reluctant to uproot the children. This person took so much from us, she said. I wouldn't let them take more. Two years after the Watcher's unnerving welcome, the Broadduses borrowed money from family to buy a second home in Westfield, using an LLC to keep the location private. But staying in Westfield wasn't easy. Maria was in constant fear of her children's safety. Dropping them off at the pool, she'd stay glued to the tracker on their phones for hours. In class, one of their teachers held a debate about whether a given fictional family they were discussing should move to Westfield. The students all agreed Westfield was a great choice. It was safe. Quote, no matter what your parents say, a fellow student told one of the Broaddus children. Mm. Meanwhile, the Broadduses, still trying to sell 657 Boulevard, held opulent open houses, albeit ones that served a dual purpose. Guests were required to sign a ledger book. Afterwards, Derek and Maria would compare the signatures to the watcher's handwriting. Mm. Alas, nice. no clues, and worse, still no buyers. Finally, a couple with grown children and two large dogs agreed to rent the home. Though the rental agreement stipulated they could back out at any time should the watcher make an appearance, the family wasn't particularly worried. Then, two weeks... Then two big ducks. <laughs> two big ducks. Then, two, big two weeks after the new tenants moved in, Derek was called in to deal with some vermin who'd taken up resident and, uh, residence in the attic. The renter handed him an envelope, fresh from the mailbox. The handwriting sent chills down his spine. Oh, no! Violent winds and bitter cold to the vile and spiteful Derek and his wench of a wife, Maria. Hateful. I'm starting to think this person's an anime fan. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> I say with love. I'm just saying. Just right, yeah. Anime fans tend to be, you know, have a, it's, uh, some anime fans tend to have a much higher falutin literary style when they post online. Just saying. Just, just an observation. Just purely unscientific. Just um, anecdotal. That's, yeah. Um, the there letter, the later was dated February 13th, the day Derek and Maria had given depositions in the lawsuit against the Woodses. Mm -hmm. um, quote, you wonder who the watcher is. Turn around, idiots. Maybe you even spoke to me, one of the so-called neighbors who has no idea who the watcher could be. Or maybe you know and are too scared to tell anyone. Good move. 
This time the watcher was angry, his or her style more erratic, and they'd been keeping abreast of both the media coverage and Derek's own investigations. I watched as you watched from the dark house in an attempt to find me. Telescopes and binoculars are wonderful inventions. Regarding their attempt to push the subdivision proposal through the planning committee, 657 Boulevard survived your attempted assault and stood strong with its army of supporters barricading its gates. My soldiers followed my orders to a T. They carried out their mission and saved the soul of 657 Boulevard. All hail the Watcher. A fucking nut. I know. Anyone that's like, this all hail, person... all hail me. Yeah, this that's person a... definitely is a troll on Twitter, too. Mm, they just need, they just need. Multiple to... accounts. They just need 100%. to get, need to get laid. Uh, the renter whom the watcher mentioned was a little, uh, the renter whom the watcher mentioned by name was a little spooked, but agreed to honor the lease if Derek installed more cameras, which he did. The letter indicated vengeance could come in a variety of surreptitious ways. Maybe a car accident, maybe a fire, maybe something as simple as a mild illness that never seems to go away, but makes you feel sick day after day after day after day. Maybe the mysterious death of a pet. Loved ones suddenly die. Planes and cars and bicycles crash. Bones break. To me, it just sounds like this person's like, I'm going to just tap out now, but I still want you to be afraid. So right. basically so anything, anything that bad, bad happens, happens, it's me. It me. Yeah, I did it. Yeah, I totally did. It <laughs> Hashtag me. it me. <laughs> it me. <laughs> Uh, the Broadduses continued to press the case, but there still wasn't much for law enforcement to go on. For all intents and purposes, uh, they were back at square one. You could look up and down the street and see the watcher everywhere. A man who sometimes walked around the neighborhood playing a flute. An elderly couple behind the house who had lived there for 47 years. One of their kids had married a man who grew up in, of all places, 657 Boulevard. But these were bits of information that could mean everything or nothing, depending on how hard you looked. The Broadduses sent new names to the investigators whenever they found something odd, but their greatest fear was that the Watcher could be someone they'd never suspect. For all that, the Watcher seems, at least for the time being, to be in hibernation. 657 is currently leased to new tenants, but the rent doesn't cover the mortgage. The Broadduses continue to deal with the ordeal's uh, lingering effects, comforting their children when they get teased at school, avoiding the people who spoke out against them at the planning meeting, though that's hard in a small town like Westfield. Adding insult to injury, the planning board approved a subdivision in 2019 that represents an even bigger exception than the ones the Broadduses were asking for. Fuckers. Mm -hmm. Assholes. They're just assholes. <sighs> Fucking hate them. They're like, it's like from a Shirley Jackson novel. I mean, I feel like if I was in that position, it would be like, okay, let me just single-handedly bring down the, the market value of this neighborhood. So when you have your mm -hmm. little open mm -hmm. houses, when you try to sell your home, I'll be out front. Talking about the watcher, saying right. it could be you too, and they just didn't tell you. You right. might want to ask. Right. And, you know, fuck these people. Well, ah. not, not many residents spare a thought for the watcher these days. It seems the real estate market is as good as it ever was. The Broadduses hope that renting the house without incident for a few years will enable them to sell it down the road. Uh, they're not naive enough to think the watcher will ever be brought to justice, though. In a weird right. twist... The Watcher is also no longer the only person sending anonymous letters to Westfield residents. Of Several not. families received an envelope in their mailboxes Christmas Eve of 2019, delivered by mm. hand. Apart from being <gasps> Westfield residents, the recipients had only one thing in common. All had been among the Broadus' most vocal opponents in the planning meeting. All were huh. now called to task for their role in the debacle. Quote, the letter said, I wish we could go back to the days of tars and feathers. It said, I have just the couple in mind. The letters were signed, all of them, friends of the Broadus family. 
Uh, well, I like that one. Yeah, and that that that's that's the end for now of the wow, Watcher. But it, it's such insane. a it's such a recent case that I wonder if we'll we'll hear more, more about updates. it. You know, but I just yeah. like the whole. It's such a fascinating and tragic story because like this community is supposed to be one of the best places to live, but man, buyer beware! It's like it may be a great house, but. I think I think the 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 lesson here, if there is one, is that man, when you buy something, when you buy how wherever you live, you better make sure your neighbors are willing to have your back if shit goes south. And it's right. you know, and I mean, it's just like one of those things. All the, these same people, you know, these same fucking people are always talking about community and it takes a village and blah 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 blah. But when push comes to shove and they see their property values declining because of something happening to a family near them, man, they're the yep. first people to turn tail and be like, no, nah, fuck them, get them out of here. Like it's just yeah. community. Is bullshit <laughs> well i would say too the thing like to keep in mind about this particular situation is that you know even though they kept a lot of it private maybe mm. they shouldn't have gone public with any of it well they didn't it seem to empower they because didn't. how do people know about it though how do people find out about it well because because they tried to sue the woodses and then the right. reporter got wind of that like they shouldn't i i don't think they should have sued the woodses but i don't no. know the whole story there we none of us do i mean i think they were just mad that the woodses were like I think, honestly, they were like, we're not moving into this house because the crazy person is watching our fucking kids and writing about right. it. And so they were like, the only way we can get out of this, because we can't sell the house right now, the only way to get out of it is to just fucking try to get out of the sale. So I don't think they were, I don't think they were suing the, the Woodses just for money. I think they were suing them to get out of the sale. I think they right. wanted to I settle agree. out of court. And I get, and I think that was their only option because the police weren't fucking helping. The police were like, well, we have this one suspect, but we discount, we don't, whatever. It's like... They, yeah. I feel like they were outsiders, probably because mm -hmm. Derek worked in Manhattan or as a vice president of a Manhattan firm. He was considered new money because he'd grown up working class. And yeah. even though Maria, you know, I feel like they looked at her as the prodigal daughter who had gone out and married, you know, beneath, beneath her. her. And so now they're like, you dare come here and buy this beautiful fucking house, you know. And, and I think it's just, I, I, I don't know. I, I really think. It was probably some crazy person. Uh, I, my favorite suspect is still Michael Langford. Um, mm -hmm. And and who knows? I mean, maybe not, but maybe that's unfair. Maybe it's just it's unfair to pick on someone just because they, they have a, a mental illness. But whoever it was, I think just, you know, the fact that the community seemed to get behind the watcher without knowing it, yeah. they were siding with the watcher by either refusing to believe that he or she existed or that it was all the Broadduses or by just going, well, I mean, it's pretty bad, but I mean, my God, I mean, well, they were victim at least, shaming, right? At least they're they were, keeping, they at least they're keeping them. the new money out of town. Right. Yeah. They were victim shaming. They've okay. They blamed them directly for it. They told, Oh, it's not that big of a deal. Why are you that upset about it? Yeah. You know? So it's all of these like traditional ways to blame victims mm -hmm. for anything and may hold them accountable and not and the person. And it's just another way to excuse themselves out of having to have an opinion. They're just yeah. kind of like, Oh, well it's probably, I mean, I mean, it sounds bad, but when you were looking at closer, they probably deserved it. So I right. don't yeah. need to change anything about how I feel about the person that may be responsible or the people that got behind them. You know, it's like this whole community, just like they, when push comes to shove, most communities, what, where be they online communities or an actual street in some nice quote unquote neighborhood, um, people just, they don't want to rock the boat. They want, they will look for any fucking reason mm -hmm. to keep things status fucking quo because God forbid you get off your ass and inconvenience yourself to try to help 
another person who's going through some shit. Like, right. Or even themselves. Like, mm-hmm. I deal with that in my townhouse with the HOA. People who've been here for a long time are far less likely to say, hey, why can't we force the insurance to do their job? Yeah, right? Like, because we're having problems with getting the roof redone. And the insurance mm-hmm. company's like, oh, well, you know, it, it's not that bad. It really didn't hurt your roofs. And it's like, the city of Dallas called this hailstorm uh, a disaster. So the city of Dallas says it is, and we have evidence that it did it. But the people who have been here a while are like, I mean, but we don't want to to bring down the value of our homes by complaining to the insurance company. And it's like, uh, <laughs> what do you just, think is going to bring down the value? Shitty roofs? That or? is that like it devalues your house when you actually try to make good on an insurance policy you're already fucking paying for. Right. And also, you've been here 15 years. What do you give shit about the value like, of the house? It's like gambling. And if yeah. you're lucky enough to win a bunch of money, the casino goes, cool, um, you only get this money. We didn't tell you this, but you only get this money now if you give us a hand. Like, you literally give us your hand. Right. It's such it's a... So I stupid. hate it. I fucking hate it. It's just... I I'm I have I don't think I'll ever want to own a house. I don't. Not that yeah. renting is not that renting comes with its own bullshit of course, but I mean like it's such I hate being at the mercy of lazy fucking assholes who don't give two shits about me and what me and my family might be going through if it came to it. Like, why? I just, I fucking hate the idea. I'd love to have a house. I'd love to have a house. I'd love to have a little bit of property and stuff like that. But in mm-hmm. the end of the day, it just doesn't seem worth it because so much bullshit comes with being part of a community. When, and this is the malcontent in me saying this, again, community's bullshit. It's all fun and games until something bad happens to one of its members and then no one fucking circles the wagons anymore. They just go, oh, well, I guess they're not part of our community anymore. Bye. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's Ugh. just a bunch. It's a just a giant fucking circle jerk. And the minute someone yeah. gets in, the minute someone dries up, they're kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> God forbid no one thought to bring any lube. So if that if more stuff happens, you're going to let us know, right? Yes. Yes. I, I try to keep updated on this every few weeks. I'll go and see if there's any any new stuff. And that's why I'm okay. glad I looked because I, that article written by Weideman in the cut is really, really good. Uh, yeah. And again, I strongly recommend it. It's called the it's called The Haunting of 657 Boulevard uh, by Reese Weideman in the cut. And it's a long, well written article. And nice. there's a lot of information there because it kind of kept up to date. I think it just came out last year. So as far as I oh, know, perfect. it's it's the most recent well-researched uh, expose on the subject. So right. I will keep well, you guys abreast if, if uh, Whiteman writes more or if someone else writes more. Let's take a little break because I need let's some water. do, yes. And then we'll come back. Okay. All right. We're so back. We're, we peed. We got water. We peed. We're ready because this, this is a long one. I am okay. so ready for this. So... This story is called The Watsika Wonder. The Watsika. W A T S E K A. Watsika. Watsika. It's in Illinois. Okay. I don't know. It's a little tough. So let me just say that this story, I, you know, jumped into the hole after watching it on uh, uh, one of the videos. It was just a real quick blip. And I was like, oh, I want to know more about that. Okay. And as I learned more, I told Jack. And as I told Jack, he kept saying, well, that's really weird. So <laughs> when that'll Jack give says you an idea. Weird, you know, it's, it's good. It's gold. Yeah. You've hit pay dirt. So, 
The Watsika Wonder is the name given to the alleged spiritual possession of 14-year-old Laurency Venom of Watsika, Illinois, in the late 19th century. Mm. My sources are Wikipedia, uh, The Unconsciousness Unbound by Michael Grosso. Grosso is a parapsychologist. Skeptics mm. really hate him. But, uh, <laughs> they he hate had most some good, Yeah, right. He had some good information on, like, like factual information in his uh, blog spot, as okay. well as an interesting spiritual perspective that, yeah, we'll get there. Uh, uh, I, am, so, I am intrigued. Yeah, though, and then also... The Watsuka Wonder, a narrative of startling phenomena occurring in the case, which is a personal account given by E. Winchester Stevens in 1887, and an editor wrote it down. So it is the perspective of what happened. And in this writing, a lot of the major family members and people involved signed affidavits mm. stating that this is true to the best of their knowledge. So they all read it and signed off on it. Okay, so it's not okay. just word of mouth stories being passed down or tradition. Like, we have legal no. documents. It, yeah, they, this is from the source. And it was released as a pamphlet. And then I I don't know when in what order, but they are signed. I don't know if they're legal affidavits, but they are signed statements saying hmm. this is true. Okay. This act, this All right. It's a good start. So, Yeah. Uh, Mary Laurency Venom was born April 16th, 1864, in Milford Township, seven miles south of Watsik. So, Watsika. Uh, it's interestingly the day that I decided to do this story was <laughs> April 16th. So, I messaged Michael at the time. I was like, holy fuck, <laughs> I did it. And I didn't know that until I was looking into it, that that was Mary Laurency Venom's birthday. Uh, but her family eventually moved to Watsika in April of 1871. And we're going to call her Laurency because that's what everybody else called her. And there's another Mary involved, and it's going to get real fucking confusing if we have two Marys, especially considering what happens. Now, <laughs> Rancy is also another name. Her family called her Rancy. She had not been a sickly child. She had a light case of measles when she was a kid, but that was it. And then one morning in 1877, a 13-year-old Rancy let her parents know about an incident that happened the night before. She said, there were persons in my room and they called to me, Rancy, Rancy, and I felt their breath on my face. Michael's just making a face. I'm just like, sorry. Mm. I, can't, I, I wish microphones caught facial expressions, but sometimes right. I'm happy they don't. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> the following evening, she got up from bed because she couldn't sleep. Every time she would start to fall asleep, she'd hear a voice calling to her saying, Rancy, Rancy. Eventually, her mother decided to go to bed with her. And so to keep the voices at bay and, mm. and uh, mm. keep her from being too scared. So then finally, Rancy got to sleep when her mom... W uh, went to bed with her. A few days later, on July 11th, again, this is 1877, Rancy told her mother she was not feeling well right before placing her hand to her left breast and immediately going into some sort of fit, oh. falling on the floor and lying there as if she were dead. Oh. Every muscle was rigid. It could be a seizure, seizure, of course, except she was in that position for five hours. Jesus Christ. When she woke up, 
she merely stated that she felt queer, which is her word, not mine. <laughs> Just going to say that right now. Welcome to it, honey. Welcome to it. It was a different time. <laughs> I remember when that happened to me. Oh, it's nice. <laughs> Changed uh, my life. <laughs> so she went to bed that night as usual, and she rested well. The next day, the rigidness returned, but this time she started talking. Lying as if dead, she told her family what people, various people and spirits she could see, describing them and calling some by name. Mm. Among those mentioned were her sister and brother who had previously passed away. She said, oh, mother, can't you see Laura and Bertie? They're so beautiful. Bertie had died when Laurency was only three. Hmm. These trances hit Laurency off and on until September of that year. So from July to September, every time she would have them, she'd speak of spirits and angels that she could see wherever she was. Hmm. After September, though, she stopped completely. Just stopped having them. Eh, weird. Until, every, like, everything so was back to normal. It's like allergy season, but with spirits. Right, right. Until November, that is. Uh-oh. Laurency then started having severe stomach pains, and that would throw her into these fits or trances again. Huh. She saw the angels and the spirits and spoke of them, and this kept happening through February. Laurency believed that she was visiting heaven during these trances, which lasted between one and eight hours. Jesus. Now, Watsika wasn't a huge town, so it didn't take long for Laurency's condition to make headlines. She'd been going to a couple of local doctors, but the general consensus of those around her, excluding her parents, was that she was suffering from insanity, since there seemed to be nothing physically wrong with her. The Methodist preacher in town even contacted an insane asylum to ask them if they would receive her for the family. Wasn't that nice of them? Oh, yeah. That's nice. As you can imagine, asylums were known as dumping grounds with horrible conditions even at the time, so Laurency's parents did not want to send their little girl away. She was 13. Yeah, that would have been hell. I mean, it's hell. Yes. Like it was basically where you went about it's where you went to be forgotten. So, there was another group of people who also did not want to send Laurency to an asylum. And those were the spiritualists. Now, of course, this is the mm. mid 1800s. Spiritualism was a really big movement at the time. Huge. Yeah. And these people felt that there was more to the story than just a crazy girl that needed to be sent away. Among those people was Asa B. Roth whose daughter, Mary Roth, had suffered the same sort of affliction. This is mm. why I didn't want to say Mary and Laurency. <laughs> Mary, Mary, yeah, it's Mary and Laurency. So mm. Asa didn't want Laurency to suffer the same fate as his daughter, so he enlisted the help of renowned spiritualist Dr. E.W. Stevens to investigate the case. Mm. Stevens is the one who talked about the in the in the book. That's his telling. Okay. So... As far as connections to the Roth family, the Venom family lived not terribly far from the Roths during the summer and spring, spring and summer of 1871 when they first moved to Watsika. But by the fall, they had moved to the extreme opposite side of the city, which in the mid-1800s was a big deal. They weren't going to see them very often. Uh, Mrs. Right, Roth right. Ca called on Mrs. Venom once, but Mrs. Venom never called on her. So mm. that just means, go, like, when you called on someone, you would go see them. So yeah. welcome to the neighborhood. You paid them a and call. So they yeah, they probably had that kind of a introduction meeting, blah, blah, blah. And then Mrs. Venom was like, I'm not really into it. So she, <laughs> she didn't go back. Uh, <laughs> and then the fathers, Mr. Venom and, and Asa. I mean, Asa is Mr. Venom. Mr. Venom. and No, 
Mr. Venom and, and uh, Ace just, Roth. That's right. I'm hung right, up right. on their names. Mr. Venom. It's such a great villain name. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> but they were acquaintances. Like, mm-hmm. they knew of each other and they knew each other, but they weren't friends. They weren't close. Nothing like that. Okay. Um, and so, at 4 p.m. on January 31st, 1878, Asa Roth and E.W. Stevens visited the Venom family. The Venoms, and it's spelled V-E-N-U-M-M. Okay. Uh, they, <laughs> just FYI. Uh, they had not <laughs> met E.W. Stevens. What? Good to know, I said. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now we know. It's, you see it less as Venom, maybe? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but they hadn't met Stevens before. And remember, they'd only met Asa Roth a handful of times. The only people in the house were the family, Roth, and Stevens. Laurency was curled up in a chair and looked to Stevens every bit of the old hag. She sat in silence for a while until Stevens moved his chair, and she warned him not to come any closer. She was grumpy and referred to her mother as Old Granny and her father as Old Black Dick, which is my favorite thing. (laughs) I enjoyed that. She refused to shake hands with anyone. She didn't want to be touched. And she did not talk to anybody except for Stevens. And the reason she said she was only going to speak to him was because he was a spiritual doctor, so he would understand her. Mm. Right. Okay. So you come to find out that these episodes had gotten more violent as they happened. They were darker. It wasn't Mm. as peaceful. I guess Oof. you could say. Oh. So this is the conversation Stevens had with Laurency after their strange introduction. What is your name? Katrina Hogan. How old? 63. Mm. Where from? Germany. How long ago? Three days. How did you come? Through the air. How long will you stay? Three weeks. Oh. So, Stevens asked her these questions several times, and it seemed that different people would show up through Laurency. After that, Laurency proceeded to ask Stevens very similar questions. How old are you? Where are you from? Do you have kids? What's your name? That kind of stuff. And then after that, and he answered that, she asked him questions that were more based in morality. Do you smoke? Do you drink? Things like that. An hour and a half after arriving, Roth and Steves got up to leave, and Laurency flung her arms in the air and fell on the floor straight and very rigid. Stevens described it as the way sensitives would fall on the would fall on the floor with the power in the Methodist revival meetings at the time. So <laughs> to me, it meant she was laying flat on the ground with her arms straight up in the air. Okay. That's kind of she's what gone I Methodist. She's gone full Methodist. (laughs) Methodist revival. (laughs) Methodist now was like, have a drink and chill out. So (laughs) Stevens thought that this is what had happened to her. So he took her hands as they were held upwards and, according to him, used the laws of spiritual science to connect directly with Laurency. Sounds like a bit of baloney to me, right? (laughs) The laws of spiritual science. Spiritual science. But after he grabbed her hands and started speaking with her, she started to sound like her sweet and gentle normal self while also lying stiff on the floor. But still, Stevens asked her similar what's-your-name type questions, and she answered as Laurency this time. She said that she thought she must be in heaven. She was rational. She understood what she was being asked. She didn't seem insane at all. And that's when she started talking about what was possessing her. She knew 
the spirit that was possessing her, and she felt like it was an evil spirit, bad in particular, right? She didn't like being possessed by it, but she didn't really have a choice. So Stevens offered her an alternative. She said she was surrounded by spirits, right, where she was. So he asked her if she must be controlled by something, wouldn't it be better if a kinder, gentler, purer, happier spirit would control her instead? And she was like, well, yeah, if that's possible, I'd totally rather do that. <laughs> she was like, let me think about it. Uh, yeah. Mm, if I have my druthers, sure, yeah, I would. So, so while she's in this trance, Stephen tells her to look around, see if she can find a generous and kind spirit that would be willing to prevent the cruel and insane spirit from returning to torture her and her family. She said there were a great many spirits around her, and then she started naming them. A lot of deceased, newly deceased, long dead relatives, um, a lot of those people she had never met before or heard of. Wow. But they were people that the family members that were there knew of, at least. Wow. <clears throat> then. And I imagine she was pretty cut off from the outside world. Right. Considering. You know, and, and it's possible she knew family history, but. You know. Yeah, but that's weird. It's weird. It's weird. It's very weird. So then she said that there was an angel in particular that wanted to come through, and she seemed inclined to let her. Like, I think I found one. So <laughs> this is what that's totally what she said too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I, I choose, got one. I choose you. She seems pretty fun. Uh, so when they asked who this angel was, Lawrence replied, "Mary Roth." That was Asa Roth's daughter that had passed away in the asylum 12 years prior. Asa encouraged Laurency to let Mary help her since, one, that was his daughter, and I'm sure he wanted to talk to her. But also, Mary had suffered similar trances when she was alive, so he thought that maybe Mary could help Laurency understand what was happening to her. Oh, Asa That's told a good Laurency, idea. It's like a mentorship program. Right, kind of, yeah. Asa told Laurency to have her mother bring her to the Roth home because that would probably encourage Mary to show up, stating a mutual benefit may be derived from our former experience with Mary. Mm. Stevens then asked, how long do you want to stay in this heaven? Mary had already showed up at this point and said through Laurency, always, sir. Then he asked Aww. her if she would be willing to come through in the future to help her friends. And she said, of course she would. So they decided on a time frame. He asked her what time. She said midnight. He said, that's kind of late. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's like, and a, she was it's like, like a dad talking to the daughter, like, mm, right. mm, that's a little 11? late. I want you home by 11. Yeah. Well, he, he was like, I mean, they had been there for a while too at the house. And he was like, that's a little Late for us. Can you bump it up at all? So they agreed upon 9 p.m. that she would come through at 9 p.m. It's pretty ballsy to like, you know, know. pull that with a with a spirit. It's like the spirit's right. like, bitch, you're lucky I'm here at all. Yeah. Meanwhile, she's like, midnight is like a really good time for this. Uh. Like, yeah, there's less so, there's less like there's less traffic on the bandwidth. Right. It's much easier it's so easy. to download. Yeah, not stuff. everybody knows now. Everybody does it at midnight now. It's probably super busy. <laughs> Do it and go for nine PM nowadays. <laughs> so Apparently, there was a lot of spiritually opening lights and protecting lights and shaping lights and stuff with lights that Stevens did <laughs> to Laurency, like just blessings and things like that. That, I mean, we all know what I'm talking about, right? 
Right, right, right. Yeah, to yeah. To protect yeah. her, to protect Mary, that kind of that kind of thing, religious and spiritualist type practices. So, uh, all of Makes that sense. said, everybody gave Mary the go ahead to per- possess Laurency at this point. They're like, let's fucking do it, possess <laughs> like, this little vote, girl. Yes. Yeah. So the next day, Mr. Venom, Laurency's father, mm-hmm. calls Roth to let him know that Mary wanted to go home. Oh. So here's oh. the story of Mary. Oh. Mary Roth was born in in, in Indiana on <laughs> Yep. In a in the year 1848, but she was born on my birthday. <laughs> so Jesus. I you can't and dates fucking every help time. It. Every time. It's like your weird power. Yeah, I screamed when I read it, and Jack was like, what? I was like, this bitch was born on my birthday. And then I texted Michael. So she was born on October 8th, 18, 1848. Six months later, Mary had her first fit or seizure. Uh, she remained unconscious for several hours, and after she woke up, she laid unmoving for several days. Six mm. months old. God. So at this point, time period, healthcare being what it was, Right. She, they, everybody thought that she was not going to make it, but she gradually got better, and two or three weeks later, she was fine, back to normal, normal baby. However, a couple weeks after that, she had another seizure, although it was minor in comparison to the first. The seizures and or fits, they would describe them as fits, yeah. came and went until she was ten, and at that point, she started to have episodes of fits. So it would be a few days, and she'd have several. In a short amount of time. And then she'd be fine for a while. And then she'd have several again. Right. So. um, That's rough. Uh, It's rough. Especially for the time. Because they they couldn't really do anything. No. Yeah. And and they didn't know all of the time what it was. Especially because it wasn't consistent. They never really knew. But Mm. there was one giveaway that her family could tell. And that is because she would become depressed right before a bout of them. Mm. She would get really morose, mm. really down, and just kind of in a funk. And, uh. you know, that could be a subconscious, like her body knows it's about to happen, so it puts her in this funk because that's got to be so rough, you know, when you're just well, 10, and it's also, 11, 12. It's- also just could be, you know, a, a chemical correlation in the brain to whatever mm-hmm. is causing that it, the weeks prior. It could be like there's a depletion of some endorphin or whatever. that Dopamine that, or something. Yeah, dopamine, yeah. yeah. Now, who knows? But, I mean, of course, back then they didn't make those connections. So, no. um, hey, kudos to her family for observing, like, yeah, she tends right. to her, – her personality seems to change a little bit right before – or profoundly before she has one yeah. of these. So. I mean, she'd also like – she would play sad music. And I was like, well, she's a teen, so that's just kind of a thing <laughs> she's playing, that we do. She's playing late 19th century emo. Right. Yeah, that's <laughs> kind of what she would do. Uh, but she did suffer from this sadness for years. So she probably mm. suffered depression along with. Yeah. The, and, and it seems to be something that does go along with having seizures. So, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, there's that. And on top of that, she's a teen, early teen. Emotions are all over the place. So I just, my heart breaks for Mary. And as she got older, um, crap. Okay, hold on. Okay, there it is. I I scrolled up too much. I just moved my thumb and it went like 70 pages ahead. Uh, (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) I was like, ah! This is 70 pages? Jesus Christ! 
I might have been exaggerating. It was really just one, but it could have been any number. So as she got older, the fits got more violent. Her parents said she usually got the most despondent right before the fits, like I said. And she had a lot of reputable doctors that could do nothing. She Mm. was even sent to Peoria, Peoria, Illinois, to receive the water cure treatment for 18 months. Oh, that sounds horrific. I'm not sure what it entails, but to my mind, it's like they just waterboarded her. That's what they did. Oh, fuck. Yeah. So I have it. What's the water cure? There is an article on stat written by Leah Samuel that gives a pretty good idea. And that article is titled, Four Horrifying Medical Procedures We're Glad History Forgot. Oh. And it just calls it, straight up calls it waterboarding. Oh, my God. Yeah. And this is her little Uh. uh, blip about what happens. Long before it was a violation of the United Nations Convention Against Torture, in fact, long before the UN even existed, there was a wet form of shock therapy for mental health disorders. Hospitals used hydrotherapy, or the water cure, throughout the 1800s and early 1900s. With the simplest version, hospital personnel held patients underwater until they lost consciousness, after which they were considered cured of their madness, provided they could be revived. Other forms of the treatment consisted of dunking or showering, reclining patients without warning. It isn't clear how nearly or completely drowning was supposed to help, but back in the day, it was all the rage among the anti-insanity set. Hey, it worked for witches. Uh, Let's uh, use it for uh, women with mental health problems. It'll be great. It's like I love how how being unconscious is the sign that they're cured, meaning, cool, they're no longer bugging us, so... Must be uh, my job, yeah. my work here is done. Yeah, Fucking and it wasn't exclusive to Jesus women. I want to say that too. Um, but, you know, when you think about it, Mary was sent away from home to get this treatment <clears throat> for a year and a half as a oh, teenager. God almighty. Right? So big surprise. It didn't help. They ended up sending her back. And in the summer of 1864, the doctors began bleeding her which is, of course, where they would cut and let a vein bleed out uh, a little to release any impurities within her. Jesus fucking Christ. It's ill-advised these days. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't work anymore. Um, No. They just stopped being effective. It only if you have, like, there are actually some conditions that if you have a lot of uh, platelets or something, uh, it's a testosterone thing, you get it in your blood, you... They they want you to donate blood mm-hmm. so that you can clear out all those platelets. So that that is something that happens, and and they do want pe- some people to bleed, but they say do it by going to donate, <laughs> donate some blood, uh, and yeah, it's, it's not, not like, very common. Don't don't do it as a cure for epilepsy. Right, right. And so one of the things that they would do as well, instead of just always cutting her, would be they would apply leeches to her, just. Of course, we know they just sucking the blood out of her body. And apparently Mary took to, she had these leeches and she treated them like they were her pets. But I imagine if they're regularly sucking your blood, you know, you want to be nice to them. You know what? She's making the most of it. Yeah. She's like, well, they're going to do this anyway. I might as well make friends. Yeah, right? Maybe. So apparently she got really, really bad headaches. And so she would take the leeches and put them on her temples to relieve the pressure. And to me, that makes the most fucking sense of any of these treatments. Because <laughs> apply directly to the forehead. Right. Because that's a it's a trigger. It is a it's a uh, what's it called? A, a pressure point. 
Your temples right. are a pressure point. Right, right. So she's getting the pressure of the leeches sucking on her temple, right? And it's probably <laughs> oh. relieving the inflammation around her head, which is causing a t- tension headache or any kind of headache. You know, there's te- there's inflammation there. So it probably relieved that inflammation we, pretty quickly. We are, we are not advocating leeches we're not. as no. a treatment for migraine. No, we're not. I'm just saying out of all this shit, that's the only one that makes sense. And I think part of why part of why it I feel strongly about it is because when she started doing it and when she started applying the leeches to her head or bleeding herself, they said she had a mania for it. So oh, they fuck. do something like to convince her has, that it works. She has a mania. What, everything yeah. they look at, and they're like, leeches will fix that. And she's the one with the fucking mania. She's the one with the mania. Fucking late right. 19th century doctors. Yeah. This is really, I feel strongly about it. So that's why I have to <laughs> point out like, oh, mm. she does something that actually makes sense, even though it's not advised. <laughs> but it witch. makes the most I mean, sense. And she's she the one that's. She's got a mania. She's got a fucking headache. Give the girl a break. <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> so, Jesus Christ. Now, oh, it's always the fucking way, isn't it? Yeah, right? There was one incident where she cut herself pretty deeply on her arm. Mm. And mm. Uh, that was when she was in one of her depressive states. Oh. They didn't, oh, in this in this paper, they didn't outright say she was trying to kill herself. But she did bleed so much she passed out. And she laid there uh. for five hours until Jesus. they found her. Nobody found her for five hours. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, Fuck. Which, and this is like a similar number situation with the first time Laurency was under was for five hours. Just interesting, uh. interesting comparison. Um, but mm. when they did find her, she had a violent reaction when she came to. And she stayed in this violent reaction. It was a rage-induced state for five days. Jesus. It took five men to hold her down. You go, during girl. During this entire time. I know, right? She had lost almost all of her blood and was 100 pounds. Jesus. Right. Okay, that's weird. That's weird. It's weird. That's weird. And uh, that's a lot of fives. I can't not acknowledge that. So <laughs> it's a lot, a lot of fives. It is. It's a lot it of fives. Objectively that can a lot be purely fives. coincidental, but I was like, hmm, lots of fives. But it is strange that it would take that many people to hold down a hundred pound girl. One day, who's, who's she woke bled up. out a lot. Yeah, right. After this That's fifth day, she up. woke up, seemed normal again. It was so disconcerting how not violent she was out of nowhere that people just started to do these weird experiments on her. Nothing, nothing out of like crazy or anything. They would blindfold her basically to see what she could see because it seemed uh. like she just knew where stuff was. So they blindfolded her and uh, took her. She could find her way around the house without hitting anything, without feeling around. Huh. She went into the library area and lo- and picked up an encyclopedia and went straight to the word blood and read it out loud. Wow. Of course, if she was obsessed with bleeding and blood, she could have memorized it. So they brought in a book that she'd never read before. It was one of the and, and we're talking like editors for a newspaper were coming right. in and doing so these So they're like they're coming in with shit she's never seen before. Yes. She could read it straight up blindfolded. And then you think, okay, well, maybe she could see through the blindfold. But if there's different people doing it, that seems 
It seems, uh, I mean, it seems unlikely. I mean, it, I don't know. I mean, I guess we're not there to see, like, the control of the experiment. Right. But it's still pretty suggestive. I mean, it's yeah. still it's still weird that it took five. I'm still harping on the fact that five grown-ass men yeah, were required to hold, to hold down. down a little 100-pound girl yeah. that has been, like, unconscious from bleeding out. From bleeding out, yeah. And one of the things that they did was they were like, okay, fine, let's see if she can do this. So they had these block letters, and they had her name in it and then other letters mixed in. And she pulled, with the blindfold on, pulled those letters out to spell Mary. Uh-huh. And, yeah. So the doctors that she was seeing at the time determined that she had a condition called catalepsy, which is a medical condition yeah, characterized yeah. – by a trance or a seizure with a loss of sensation and consciousness accompanied by rigidity of rigidity of the body. Sounds hmm. exactly like what she and Laurency has, mm-hmm, right? Have, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the clergy members, though, felt that it was a mystery of God's providence and that they probably shouldn't get involved. <laughs> that was their, their stance. This is a, a mystery of God, so we should keep our distance and let, wow. just, let God handle that. Did their descendants move to Westfield, New Jersey? <laughs> it's possible. Uh, <laughs> it's probable. <laughs> we should just leave it be. It's probably yeah. fine. Let's just not. So uh, she recovered for a short time after that, but then her fits and seizures increased. The violence increased. Her parents mm. were advised to put her in an asylum. Mm. Worried that they were unable to protect their daughter from herself because she started to cut herself again. They sent Mary to the Illinois State Asylum for the Insane in Jacksonville, Illinois. Now, I read that she stayed long enough to get that old asylum treatment, but I also read that she didn't even survive her first night in the asylum. So I'm not sure what to believe. There are a couple different takes there, but she did die in the asylum. Mm. And in Dr. Stevens' report, he talks about that she died, but he doesn't mention that she's in the asylum. So there's a politeness factor that's happening as well. Yeah, he's but probably she just did. trying to, yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, On July 5th, 1865, during a nap, Mary started having another seizure. After a few minutes, she died from that seizure. And uh, uh, I think probably, I don't know if she died that night. There's a lot of talk about it was a very short stay in the asylum before she passed. Yeah. But I think the people who talk about how she had treatment were probably talking about the place where she went to get the water cure. That's probably yeah. what they were what they were talking about. Uh, yeah. This and God, this is just so me context using my context clues. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so back to Laurency. That's Mary's sad life. Mm. Laurency, uh, after so we're back there, Mary has taken over. And she took the fuck over. When she <laughs> woke up as Lauren as Mary, Laurency woke up as Mary. She didn't recognize anyone in the house, and she seemed very sad. She said she missed her family and wanted to go home. That is why her father called Asa to see if she could visit. Hmm. Could this have all been an act? Obviously. Yes, of course it could. However, any symptoms of catalepsy were gone at this point. She didn't have full-on violent seizures once Mary took over. About a Hmm. week afterward, Mary's mother and sister, Mrs. Roth, and Minerva— went to the Venom house to see what was going on. Mary apparently looked out the window as they walked toward the house and said, here comes my mom and Nervy. Nervy was her nickname for Minerva. 
When they came into the house, Laurency hugged them and cried. She said she wanted to go home with them. Now, Aww. the Venoms, Mary, Laurency would go live with the Roths for a little bit. And the Venoms, when they did that, they weren't just like, you can have her now. This has been a lot of work. They were actually very worried about her because Laurency was very troubled. They had to watch her all the time because they never knew when a seizure would hit, would hit her. They didn't know if it was going to be violent. They didn't know how she would behave. They didn't want her to hurt herself, and they certainly didn't want her to hurt anybody else. Yeah. So they were very, very worried about what would happen if Laurency went to live with someone else. Also, what's going to happen if she's with people she doesn't know? That kind uh, of a thing. But right. I mean, so that's I, they could not have made that decision lightly. There's no way. Right. Yeah, no, and and it's written that it was not a light decision, that they were very, very concerned. And the Roths talked to them and said, and of course, Dr. Stevens, like, blows it right at all the smoke up their ass talking about how great the Roths are. But I get it. They said, they assured her, the mom in particular, Mrs. Venom, that, that they would take care of her. Mrs. Roth explained to her that she had been through the same thing with Mary, so she knew how to take care of her. She knew what to do if she was having these seizures and these fits. So Mm. they eventually agreed and asked Mary how long she would stay in Laurency. And she replied that the angels would let her stay until sometime in May. And sure enough, Laurency stayed with the Roth family from February 11th until May 21st. Hmm. Of course, the neighbors would talk. One preacher told the Roths, I think you will see the time when you will wish you had sent her to the asylum. Another relative of Laurency's said, I would sooner follow a girl of mine to the grave than have her go to the Roths and become a spiritualist. So that's concern for the girl, obviously. Yeah. These are One the same the, people that'd be out protesting the the, the yeah, COVID nineteen right. like lockdown measures too. They'd be yeah. like, "Let I need a haircut. Who cares about your health? It's all a conspiracy." But my roots. Uh, <laughs> but I, and it's so funny because you know those people aren't getting their roots done regularly anyway. No, let's be honest. No, they're Bitch, just mad. That someone, is a three And they wouldn't be leaving their fucking house like, either. They're just mad that someone's telling them what to do. They're just a bunch of fucking brats. Right. And how come there's so many fucking people that are retired wanting to go back to work? Fuck you. Yeah, it's because they live in a fucking fantasy world and be damned what it costs any of the rest of us. Fuck well, em. and also the Fuck majority em. of it is paid for by billionaires to oh. make it seem like there's actual people. But the vast majority of people don't feel that way. And then they'll film it really close to make it look like there's thousands and thousands of people, but there's not. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So. Oh, yeah. Anyway. We know that. Okay. We know that trick. Yeah, right. So, yeah, we don't we? <laughs> <laughs> No comment. Okay, so one of the doctors who said she was only suffering for ca- from catalepsy, so he was like, it's catalepsy, that's all it is, catalepsy. Uh, he said, humor her whims and she will get well. Well, why didn't he give him that fucking advice before? Yeah. It's that, but, mm, yeah. Uh, Just let her do what she wants. She'll heal from do- seizures. What the fuck? Fuck. But fine. that's what he said. I was like, she's someone just, was hedging their bets. She's just throwing a tantrum. That's yeah. all. Oh, yeah. fucking medical. Seems, do- seems kinda, like really bad, bad advice. It really does. For that, for that doctor. We love doctors, though. We do uh, love doctors. I yeah. just love how it just seems to me when I think about like, like really, really ultra conservative right wing radio hosts apparently stopped reading after 1890. 
Yeah, right? Like, that's their most updated information. <laughs> okay, sure. Why not? Um, helps, it helps you understand, though. So, and it was, okay, so at the time, too, I think that a lot of people would think, okay, well, the newspapers were reporting it, everybody believed it. So, of course, everybody's going to fall right. into That is not the case. People said at the time, this bitch is faking it. They thought she was faking it. They thought there was a conspiracy. What? Oh, like People had opinions they about did. something they didn't Even know much about. Yes. <laughs> and so, and Stevens talks about it in his little, in his little thing. And he said that, uh, he points out as well, that none of those people, the naysayers, none of those people ever bothered to come visit her or her family to see what was going on. And they never even asked people who were taking care of her what happened. They made that decision without finding out any information. Uh, so, isn't that always the fucking way? Yeah, it's totally different now, though. People definitely will read a tweet and take it at face value, and well, totally... they'll go under they'll go into Reddit and <laughs> do yeah. all the research. All the re- they'll read it and and then read that they're supposed to be mad about that, and then they get mad about it. <laughs> but they're reading. Okay. <laughs> Meanwhile. It seemed as though Mary had come home. Laurency recognized names and faces of people she'd known while Mary was alive. Uh, Mary had known while Mary was alive. But remember, Mary died 12 years before she took over Laurency. So Laurency yeah. was only three. Yeah, so this is a lot of people to know. She also for a three-year-old. To, for a three-year-old, yeah. Uh, she also seemed to remember a lot of experiences Mary had. She was social. She took care of her chores. She was normal. She experienced trances once every few days, but they weren't violent. They weren't seizure-like. They seemed very, very gentle in comparison. Hmm. Uh, during the sp- trances, other spirits claimed to visit through Laurency's body. Mrs. Roth wrote a lot of letters. There are a lot of letters that were written at the time to family members and other people, to Dr. Stevens from the family. And so these letters were used in this pamphlet, this this article as, as well. And this is Mrs. Roth in March. A lady came through at our house who claimed to have lived and died in Tennessee and says she was afflicted from eight years of age till 25 when she died with a similar disease and in a similar way that Mary died. She says that Mary has control of Laurency venom and will retain control till she is restored to her normal condition when Mary will leave. Mary is a happy as a lark and gives daily, almost hourly proofs of being Mary's intelligence. She didn't recognize Laurency's family or friends at all. She knows and recognizes everything that our Mary used to know and nothing whatsoever of the Venom Girl. She now enters the trance without any rigidity of the muscles whatsoever, very gently and at her own will, describes heavenly uh, scenes, etc. We Mm. think all will be well and Laurency restored her... Wait, we think... We think all will be well, and Laurency restored to her Orthodox friends yet. Some Mm. of the relatives are yielding by Mary's calling their attention to things of 13 years ago that transpired between her and them. It wakes them up. It is wonderful. It would take a volume to give the important items that have occurred. Wow. Wow. On May 7th, Laurency and Mrs. Roth had a private conversation in which Mary told her mother Laurency was coming back. She was sad about it, and uh, there was a chance Laurency wouldn't let Mary come back at all. Hmm. She lowered her head for a moment. When she looked up, she appeared startled, and she said, where am I? Mrs. Roth spoke with her for a bit and asked her if she had a pain in her chest. 
Previously, Mary had been holding her chest and saying she had a pain there. Right, right. Laurency did that before she would have trances previously. Mm. So hmm. it's just an interesting connection. Yeah. When hmm. Mary or when Mrs. Roth asked her about that pain in her chest, Laurency replied, No, I don't have it, but Mary did. Mm. After about hmm. five minutes, Mary reappeared through Laurency. As time went on, she appeared more and more affectionate to the Roth family. It was as if she was craving their touch. And then I did the same fucking thing. Okay. Damn it. I need to stop flipping it with my thumb. Um, so, okay. So they asked her about it. Like, there's this one of the stories her sister told in a letter was that she was kind of annoying her parents, the the Roths, with yeah. touching and holding them and wanting to love on them and kiss on them and just be Aww. close to them. And they asked her, like, what the fuck is going on? But I'm sure they did it nicer. Uh, she told them <laughs> it was because she knew she was going to have to go back soon. And Aww. afterwards, she wouldn't be able to touch them anymore. She would only be able to visit in spirit. And that sometimes they wouldn't even know she was there. Aww. She just wanted to hold them as long as possible so she could feel them close to her. Oh, Which is so sweet oh, and it's sad. So sad. Oh. Uh, so she also seemed to be popular in the spirit world. She talked to all kinds of folks, including kings and queens, which is oh, what makes that's... me immediately suspicious. Of course, it was like Queen Anne and Henry VIII and shit like that. So then I'm like, really? But some of these encounters. I mean, they were unusual. dead. They were dead. So. <laughs> Uh, she would know names and important dates and moments from a lot of people who died, and they were people Laurency would have never met. Laurency hmm. also uh, assumed the identities of numerous dead people as well when she would enter these trances as Mary, which is very confusing. She would talk by like them. She would behave like them with frightening realism. That's some Inception shit right there. Yeah. She was this uh, person's grandfather that was in the room and be, or be, grandmother and, and physically changed like the way she was carrying herself and the way she was oh, wow. talking. It was still her voice, but she it was the way that she spoke was different. The mm. things she talked about, specific things that that grandmother did. Wow. Uh, the person that was there a hundred percent believed that was their grandmother based upon what she said. And then, and she did it a lot. There were a lot mm. of people were all of these people ready to believe? Probably. But she, w she was 13 years old. Yeah, that's so, pretty, it's unusual. It's, it's it certainly unusual. gives me, it certainly gives me pause for thought. Yes. And regardless of the flux, apparently Mary was the one in control of these visitations. Hmm. And at one point, she claimed to have contacted one of Dr. Stevens' daughters that had died at about the same age. And the girls came up with an idea to let Stephen's daughter take over so that mm. she could go home with the Stevens and visit for a weekend. It <laughs> is such a teenage girl thing to do. Uh, I would read that book, absolutely. So <laughs> apparently all the adults were like, no, maybe not. Maybe that's pushing it too far. <laughs> so. Uh, my house, my rules, young lady. <laughs> I can just totally see the story of this one girl that's alive 
and these two spirit girls, and they're all like friends in this other realm talking about, ooh, wouldn't it be fun? Uh, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> talking about boys. Yes. And uh, <laughs> who's going to live in Lawrence that day? So uh, <laughs> let's see. Where was I? Okay. So when asked where Lawrence was, Mary would reply, she's gone out, or she's taking lessons in heaven, and I'm taking lessons here. According to Mary, Laurency was getting healed in heaven from the seizures and the fits, that mm. they were fixing it. And, mm. you know, I put, I guess she was getting the real water cure, whatever that was. Uh, <laughs> Mary eventually told the family that she was going to She was getting universal health care. Right. Yeah. That's heavenly health care. So, yeah. Mary finally told them, I'm leaving Laurency's body uh, on May 21st at 11. And so it's like very specific. She spent the morning, that morning, saying goodbye to the neighbors. The neighbors prayed with her. The neighbors Mm. 100% believed that Mm. it was Mary because of things that she knew. And she would visit them, and she played with kids in the neighborhood. She was there for three months and 10 days, something like that. Yeah, she was there yeah. a long time. And wow. so she said goodbye to them. She returned to the Roths to say goodbye to her family. At 11 o'clock, Laurency showed back up. Minerva, Mary's sister, escorted Laurency home, which was Mary's request. And mm. Minerva, at this point, had moved out. She was married. She had had, she had, had a miscarriage that Mary... Mm said during one of her trances that she could see her baby and they hadn't told Laurency or Mary about wow. this baby. Um, wow. Wow. But so she, yeah. And so she came back to to take her home, escort her home. And <laughs> Laurency said, do you want to talk to her on the way home? Because I feel like maybe you guys should have this time together. <laughs> and Minerva was like, Maybe yeah, that just... would be, I think that would be really nice if you don't yeah. mind. And so Lawrence yeah. was like, okay. And then Mary was like, I'm back, bitch. And then they, <laughs> they talked for the trip. <laughs> and that's word for word what I happened. I love that. I love that. I love <laughs> and that so, so it's much. just, the whole thing is so girly. Like, it's <laughs> it consistently is. girly. So, um, <laughs> so that she stayed and they talked. And then when she got there, Lawrence took over. Uh, mm. On May 22nd, so the next day, Asa Roth wrote Dr. Stevens the following letter. Thank God and the good angels, the dead is alive and the lost is found. I mailed you a letter yesterday at half past 10 o'clock a.m. stating that Mary had told us she would go away and Rancy return at 11 o'clock the 21st of May. Now I write you that at half past 11 o'clock a.m., Minerva called at my office with Rancy Venom and wanted me to take her home, which I did. She called me and Mr. Roth and talked with me as a young girl would, not being acquainted. I asked her how things appeared to her. They seemed natural. She said it seemed like a dream to her. She met her parents and brothers in a very affectionate manner, hugging and kissing each one in tears of gladness. She clasped her arms around her father's neck a long time, fairly smothering him with kisses. I saw her father just now, 11 o'clock. He said, she has been perfectly natural and seems entirely well. You see my faith in writing you yesterday morning instead of waiting till she came. Okay, so... We can break this apart a bit. We can be skeptical about this. First of all. Well, yeah, sure. Yeah. They say that the families didn't know each other, but they did. I mean, they knew each other enough. They were, they give a, he gives a specific space, like 
distance, and it seems like they were about 800 feet away from each other for a couple of months. Well, and their daughters suffered very similar, I mean, the same malady, and so they would have probably been alerted to each other by doctors or whatever, going like, hey, maybe talk, I mean, or, you know, the dad of, uh, Mary's dad would have taken an interest because he maybe just didn't want to see another family go through or make the same mistakes that they had made. Except... Laurency didn't have those until after they moved away. Hmm. So yeah, I guess that's, I mean. It's yeah. weird. It's weird. It's weird. Um, I... But they did know each other. So anytime you can determine that they did know each other, there might be something afoot. Right? Right, um, right. And, and then on top of that, you have Dr. Stevens and Asa Roth in the room when she first started speaking as another person. Yeah. This could have just been because they were asking the right questions. But it also could have been because Laurency was suggestible. She was 13. She was a young girl. She was having issues. She did speak of talking to spirits and angels before the men showed up to help, though. She was having violent fits before they got there. So mm. did they give her an out? Who knows? But... Mm. It, a lot of people believe she was just extremely suggestible. Well, uh, I mean, it Ms. is, to be fair, it is really easy to to um, plant a suggestion in someone's mind uh, without their knowing it. Like, it's it's the it's false memory syndrome. I mean, it happens mm-hmm. a lot. And I'm not suggesting that it happens all the time or that everyone that has those memories. But, I mean, look at the look at the satanic panic and, and with uh, the children yeah, that were supposedly right. being abused by their preschool teachers who were part of supposedly part of this massive satanic conspiracy. Like, none mm-hmm. of it was true. Right. But it's because at the time, it was taken seriously because at the time we didn't understand that, you know, children are not innately honest. They right. they They will... Suddenly, they don't it, at that age. Not and thirteen is is quite a bit older than say a toddler, obviously, if, and you're right. a little more developed. But you know, as a kid, you don't always know the difference between you what say happened what makes people and, happy. and what and what you or and you may not be intending to do that. Maybe someone says, "Well, what if this happened?" And suddenly you begin to think, "Well, yeah, that did happen," and you begin to mm-hmm. color your own memory, thinking, "Well, I just you start putting the pieces together." Memory is very fallible. And not and not a not at all a good barometer of whether something actually happened or not, which is why you need multiple people mm-hmm. uh, to, to yeah. corroborate an event. But all that said, it's there's still things about this case that are really weird. There are now another issue is that Mr. Roth is the one that suggested she let Mary take over. How mm. how much suggestion was that? Then she lived with them for three months. How much information is she getting from the family? From that, right? Yeah, right. She could, but could she have faked it for three months and then stopped having seizures and trances entirely after she got back? That's the weird thing about it. Now, yeah. whether or not she could have faked it for three months, absolutely. Because if you have a willing audience, sure. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I imagine Mary's family um, felt very guilty about how their daughter had died. Right. Um, you know, and so I if if I'm not saying that 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 uh, this was a charade, but if it was, I could see why they'd be emotionally invested in it. So they'd be like, you know, they'd maybe fudge the details a little bit to be like, yeah, she she knew something. 
right. uh, that we couldn't have told her. And they maybe didn't realize that they had told her or had forgotten. Like we we don't, as as uh, normal everyday people, we don't realize how much information we give to people who are cold reading us. It right. is, we just don't. Like if you are in that state and you want to believe it, then you don't realize that, oh my God, that person just told me that I had, you know, my father passed away and my father's name was was Patrick. And the first thing they said to me was P, but we forget that they also went through the whole fucking alphabet before they settled on the letter P. Right, You know, yeah. because we want to believe. And it's true. So, it's, I think, and these I are think, people who who have studied human nature, right? Right. We're talking about a 13-year-old girl that didn't have the fucking internet. So how is she going to know how individual old people behave? Like, this is the most natural, best actor in the entire fucking world, if maybe. that's the case. And I know people are, are uh, willing to believe stuff, but three months is a long time for a 13-year-old to do anything. And so she stays in character as Mary the entire time. She convinces neighbors. She convinces the family. She convinces other family members that are skeptical that she is, in fact. And there's the case of her brother. So Mary's brother, Frank, I think is what his name was. Mm -hmm. He got sick. Now, the day day that he he got sick overnight, and that day Mm -hmm. she told... Uh, Mrs. Roth, that she was really worried about Frank because she knew he was going to get sick and it was going to be really bad. Hmm. And sure enough, that night he got sick and nobody, they couldn't find the doctor. They went to get the doctor and they couldn't find him. And Laurency slash Mary told them where to go. He was going to be at this house. So they went to the house and the doctor was there and he had changed his plans last minute to check up on someone, I think. And Mm. nobody knew where he was. She had no way of knowing where he was, and he was and there. And there's things like that that are really interesting. Like, and and who knows? But I mean, there's always in in my movie, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> we would learn that that uh, uh, am I saying her name, Lancy? Lurency. That Lurency maybe had psychic abilities, but was also part of it was also putting on an act in so order to is... kind of veil, you know, because it's easier to. I mean, I'm just suggesting, like, you, you, real quick, I want to touch on this. You said, like, this 13 year old girl would have to be a really good actor and know human psychology. I think you don't have to know human psychology very well to to lie to people that want to be lied to. A 13-year-old right. frequently finds himself going, wow, I can't believe they bought that. Well, okay. You just yeah. you do what works and you realize you're lucky that it worked. If you're in the right situation, you can be a good actor even if you're not experienced. And that right. may be it. But perhaps she was in fact psychic and just kind of did the whole Mary thing because she was able to glean information, but she wasn't actually possessed. She was just saying it. So to give it a I'm little... I'm so glad you brought that up because that's give, the fucking controversy. To give her story a little more veracity. That's the controversy within spirituality. Like within the spiritualists mm-hmm. and the and the parapsychologist is, was she faking it? Was she actually a very, very strong medium and extremely, like she had these supernatural skills that she used to trick people into thinking that she was possessed, but she wasn't possessed. Right. And I'm like, that is so fucking crazy. And I love that you brought and, that up because right, and you say, there's you know, controversy like, within the spiritual, yeah, spiritualist it's, it's whether never, or not. It's never all black or white. There's got to be no. some, I think a lot of, I, I remember <clears throat> uh, Joseph Campbell, uh, the, the thinker and philosopher and, and mythologist who who said this. He, he himself talked to an Inuit uh, shaman and uh, the shaman was like, no, very much of what I do is real, but I do put on a show. There's there, I have my tricks just to keep mm-hmm. the rabble in line because he's like, most of what I do isn't all that spectacular 
until you sit down and think about it. So in order to get, you know, to get money, I gotta, you know, I gotta make them believe, yeah, I'm, I'm pulling organs out of your body or, or whatever, right. even though like, so there is a level of trickery that every genuinely talented or gifted paranormal person has to do yeah. in order to engage it because people are fucking stupid and be like, uh, they don't, they're not gonna, you know, a ghost story, we've talked about this before, a ghost story where you only hear footsteps is not nearly as impressive as a ghost story where someone, you know, shows up behind you in a mirror and puts an icy hand on your shoulder. Like right. we, we are desensitized and we need to be entertained and we need a story. So yeah. someone that is going to come up with one. And I can imagine a 13-year-old girl being like, no one's going to fucking listen to me. And when I say, like, I sense these things, I know these things, I don't know how I know them, but they're in here and they're accurate. No one's going to listen to a 13-year-old girl, but they may listen to me if I say I'm possessed right. by a dead person. And the thing, the thing that puts it so I feel like it's a little of all of it. It has yeah. to be. Yeah. And the what gets me the most is the seizures. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. those stopped. She was no she no longer had any violent seizures. None of that stuff happened after she got home. Except hmm. once a year, the Roths would come over and she would drop into like that gentle dropping into a trance, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like she learned how to do it. And then She would talk to Mary. Mary would talk through her to the family, and then they would do that for an hour or so and go away. Now, one of the other things, controversies or or conspiracies, is that they were all in on it together, but nobody Mm -hmm. made any money off of it. Nobody was no. They didn't sell any books about it. They didn't. Of course, they didn't make any movies about it or anything like that. So, (laughs) it they didn't go on tour, like you know the the girls that had the seances. They didn't go on tour and. Now, the trances that they did for the family, to me, is most likely something she did to be nice to this wonderful family that was yeah. so kind to her. But they were private, and they never published a single thing that came out of any of those private trances. Mm. I, You know, and that's I, – I don't think – I still think there's a chance the family let themselves be fooled, but I think they were – their heart was in the right place. I think they right. believed it. I yes. think they believed it. And um, – and, and, it's, it's, and her it, family it, had to have believed it too to let yeah. her go live there, right? And you know, you said you said earlier about like you know it's, it's three and a half months, a thirteen year old girl. I'm like, imagine how boring life would have been otherwise, though, especially in those days. Right? It's like you're thirteen. It's like you're probably gonna be married soon. Um, yeah. So why don't you go do this once in a lifetime experience? And you're and, going to play, true. and it's like that's the best time to. I suppose. I mean, it's you know, it's. It's complicated, obviously, but I think right. it's, I, it's what a fascinating story. And did it she, brings up did, that whole, like, what about the, the supernatural things that ha- have a tendency to happen with prepubescent, early pubescent, teenage yeah, yeah. girls specifically? Is this one of those yeah. situations? But the seizures had started. They were there for about a year or so, mm-hmm. and then they went away. And now, did, so is it the she ever talk about? That, Sorry, sorry. I was continue your oh, thought. Well, is it the possession the that caused the seizures? I mean, she when she, her first one, she was down for five hours. Mm. That's not faking know. it. You know what I mean? That's, no, no. I mean, she definitely had something, something. you know, medically going on. I, yeah. I just don't. I don't know that she was possessed. I think maybe she had 
I think she had access to visions or, yeah. or psychic information. And, and maybe in those days, it was easy for her to th- to equate that with being possessed. I mean, if we look at it, you know, from a standpoint of how language was used, being possessed just had different connotations, had to have had different connotations right. than yeah. that it does now. Because our, you know, we come to this idea of being possessed as like, oh, it means a person is inhabiting you, whatever. And I'm sure there was that that school of thought. Uh, there it is. Uh-huh, there um, it is. You know, in that day, but possessed could mean any number of things. It just means yeah. that you were taken, you know, you were possessed by forces beyond your control, which is, you know, the, you know, a pretty apt description, if poetic, of what you're going through if you're having an epileptic right. seizure or something. You know, in fact, there's a there's a wonderful book about uh, a community, uh, uh, um, a native, I think it's a Native American community. Forgive me if I'm getting it wrong, but there's a book called uh, "The Spirit Moves You and You Fall Down," and it's how it's the title is taken from how uh, a young person growing up in this Native culture describes uh, the experience of epileptic seizures, mm-hmm. and so spirit and being possessed by a spirit can mean any number of things to different people depending on because they're they're such nebulous phrases. And it's very easy to be like, well, yeah, I, I do feel possessed when I'm it, when when she was going through depression. I know when I mm-hmm. suffer depression, I don't feel like I'm myself. Now it's a, it's a figure. And that's of speech. Mary. That's Mary. It's, sorry, suffered, Mary. Yeah. Right, right, Mary. And you know, but saying that I'm not myself is a figure of speech, but it mm-hmm. carries a lot of weight. It's like, no, yeah. this isn't me. I feel like I've been taken over by somebody. Yeah. So it's you know, for the purposes of processing what you're going through, it's sometimes helpful to speak of it in these grander terms. And it's then easy for other people to get in on the narrative, especially if they're emotionally invested in like, you know what, we have a, you know, we had a daughter that, you know, we, we could have handled her, her, her uh, illness a little better than we did. And and we basically sent her to her death, not knowing, of course, but they have carried a lot of guilt, but they're still, again, she's a hundred pounds and it took five grown men to hold her down, you know, uh, like things like that, that, that things there's, it's obviously more complicated. Yeah, and, and so then just it's I either think, fake or it's not. It's a little bit of both, I think. And for me, if someone was like, "You have to say what you think happened," this is what I would say happened. This girl had uh, something happened that opened her up, her mm-hmm. psychic whatever that was, to the other side, whatever, and mm-hmm. it came through as a trance. It came through as this catatonic state, which has happened to people in the past, right? Oh, yeah. That's what happened. And she didn't know what it was, and she didn't know how to control it. But then all of a sudden, this doctor comes, and Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, things start to make sense. And she says things that make these people happy, and maybe she is talking to Mary. And so she goes to live with them where she's freer to do these trances and and figure out how to control the situation, control Mm -hmm. what she's seeing Mm -hmm. and what's happening to her so that maybe going forth, she still had them, but she could control them better and do them when nobody saw them or contact, you know, we don't know. What we do know, though, is that after she got married, her husband didn't want her doing any of that bullshit. (laughs) She stopped doing the yearly trances for the Roths once she Mm -hmm. got married. And everybody understood it. They said that she was, her husband was far more into having family. And in fact, she did have (laughs) children. 11. She gave birth to 11 children. Wow. And she died at 88. So she lived a very long life. She was healthy. She had all the children. So whatever this condition was didn't harm her physically long term. And in the middle of it, they were very worried about her physical health as well, which is why the asylum was such a big deal. And uh, 
I think wow. the important thing is they didn't send her to this asylum where she probably would have died. And yeah. that's quite an act to put on for attention when your family is ready to send you to an asylum. And it makes you wonder mm. if it is that psychic thing, if that's what really happened mm. and she was opening it up, how many people were sent to an asylum just because they couldn't control this phenomenon that was happening to them? Yeah, I, that's it's a great way to put it. Um, Michel Foucault, the philosopher, wrote his book Madness and Civilization, where he talked about it's only in relatively modern times, meaning after like the Reformation in mm -hmm. Europe, um, that that we tend to look at madness and non-madness, that is to say mental illness and supposed mental health as two sides of the same coin. Like mm -hmm. in, in ancient times, people that suffered from what we would now call mental illnesses were, uh, I don't want to, I hesitate to say they were put on a pedestal, but they weren't treated as, as aberrations or as, you know, otherwise normal people who were afflicted with something that interrupted their normal processes. They were seen as having a whole other valid perspective. Um, right. And sometimes they were seen as having gifts because certain types of mental illness, again, what we would call mental illnesses, were struck them like it gave them it gave these sufferers uh, access to seemingly superhuman abilities like, you know, insight into what someone else was thinking. I mean, there's there's a lot of documentation about it. And if anyone wants to kind of cut their teeth on a rather uh, dry philosophical tome, read Madness and Civilization. But it's really fascinating to think that like our relationship to the idea of mental illness has evolved. And, right. and it's now in a, it's a very different place than it was. But back, thank you God, know, back a thousand years ago, mental illness carried different connotations. And it wasn't, it, it's important to note that there was a time for a very long time in human history where mental illness was not seen as illness. Um, and, this, and this before it was seen as demons taking you over aberration. It was seen as just, oh, this is a person who's been gifted and the gifts just come with unfortunate burdens as all gifts from God do. Right. Uh, the thinking is, so it's just interesting how- Mysteries you know, of God's whatever, yeah. 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 Um, well- and I'll end on this, you know, because mm. I don't know. I don't. It's such a great thing it's a, it's to talk a, about, like, because there's so story. many ins and outs that it's mm -hmm. like, okay, this, but what about all of this shit? Uh, right, right. She never said it was a hoax her whole life. She never came out and said it was a hoax, mm. that it wasn't real. And you get a lot of these stories, these famous spiritualist stories where they did come forward and say, yeah, it's a hoax. Sometimes they said it just to get people off their back and to leave them alone so they could live oh, a I mean, the life. Fox sisters themselves came forward. Yep. The, the founders of the spiritualist movement arguably mm -hmm. came forward in their old age and said that it, that their their seances were a hoax. Mm -hmm. They then rescinded a year later, yeah, but they right. in their old age, you know, when you're old, you come out and you're like, yeah. Yeah, I was just a stupid kid. I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, and the fact that she never did that. She never did is it. She never came interesting. And said it was a hoax. So, and I mean, it was popular. It was really popular at the time. That story was popular at the time. And mm -hmm. it's maintained it since. And it, by all appearances, she backed out after that. She was, you know, she didn't seek fame. She never sought it. The papers came to her. They never made any money off of it. Never wrote any books of it. Nothing like that. Interesting. So it yeah. is. It's kind That's of when there's like, no money happening, it's like when there's wait a no minute. money or no long when there's no book deal or movie deal, mm -hmm. it does make me think, well, maybe there's a little more something to that. You know, yeah. not to say that people don't no sometimes tour. just lie Back out of then, boredom. Tours were big. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, not not that people don't just lie out of sheer boredom, especially when they're young, but yeah. Uh, it seems weird that she would live such a long life and never once go back and say, like, you know, mm, yeah, let's make that a teachable moment for you young people. Don't do what I did. You know, like it's yeah. it's interesting yeah. that she never 
never walked it back. Yeah. So who knows? What a great story, Jamie. I know. Thank you. Yeah. I'd never heard it before. I hadn't either. It was very exciting. So Ew. yes, there's that story. God. Whew, man. What a nice, juicy episode this has been. I know. It's a long one, too. So uh-huh. thank you nice. again, Erica, for reading our opening story. We You're the best. You. And the we best. love you, Erica. Yes. Um, you can... Listen to the podcasts on any of the podcast apps. You can also, of course, listen googleintentions.com. Hopefully the website won't have any weirdness in the future. <laughs> uh, I promise nothing because weird shit happens all the time. Um, <laughs> if you want to be a member of our Patreon, right now we are looking at avoiding advertisements at all so we can keep keep it going the way that we keep it going yeah. without any interruptions. Um, yeah. And so we are trying to avoid that through using the Patreon. So if you guys want to be patrons, we have tiers from a dollar to $20 and we would appreciate it. Uh, it helps yes. you know us be able to spend the time doing this. It helps us pay our engineer, Matt, which we really appreciate. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, anything, everything, we really, really appreciate it to our patrons right now. We love you. You're the best. You uh, are. And remember, it's okay to sleep sleep with the lights on. on.